Are you familiar with uh, the book, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, his book, Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on black America from 1960 to 1972? I've had it in my hands, but it's been a long, long time ago. Okay. He's a guest on our program two times. Uh, in fact, for listeners, the right. only reason I know about this book, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she said, if you have not read this book, you should not speak about racism, white supremacy. Why did she say that? Many reasons. I'm skipping to page 173. He has a whole chapter on Freedom Summer, Mississippi burning. Uh, continuing, when I read this book, I said, man, I was looking for Cointelpro to pop up, and it did not. Are you aware of Cointelpro, the FBI's campaign? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you think that's relevant to what you're talking about? I don't think so in the context of Freedom Summer, because doesn't Cointelpro come quite a bit later? Well, they've been carrying it out. Well, I mean, hey, now, do we get all the details? But I, I'm pretty sure. Well, he said he just said 1960. To 1972, that's what his book is all about, Kenneth O'Reilly, their Pro activities. Now, he would argue, or he said it flagrantly on the program, and he starts his book that way because his book starts with Marcus Garvey, that black people mm. have been suspect because they're treated like garbage. That was his metaphor. That was his metaphor. Black people are treated like garbage. So the FBI knows they are suspect. We got to keep tabs on them. In fact... I smiled when you said that they had the voting in barbershops. He mentions and talked about it with us explicitly. That's one of the places the FBI has for decades kept tabs on. You want to know what's happening with Mm. black people? Go pay somebody and get informants at the black barbershop. He talked about that in detail. But at any rate, no, Cointelpro was happening during this time period. In fact, I'm going to flip forward one page in Dr. O'Reilly's book. In fact, for the you stand by your work with your brag, so we've been on the air for 13 years. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly was one of our first 50 programs out of more than 2,000, like from day one. Wow. Wow. So he says on page 177, man, I felt so good when I went back and looked at this. The great John Lewis mentioned on this program so many times. I always, I think today is probably one of the few times in 13 years where I've actually said it the way I have today. I normally, and it's just because I've been reading their names to see it in your book, the way I always deliberately say it is James Cheney and those two white boys. From going back and looking at Kenneth O'Reilly's book, which is part of what you talk about in your book, that's part of the pushback that black people have had over the years and unnamed bodies and all the rest of it, that that's probably what's animating some of that to a degree. But this is Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's book on page 176. He says, at one time there appeared to be a consensus that the FBI had done a good job. Not everyone was appeased. It's a shame, John Lewis said. The national concern is aroused only after two white boys are missing. SNCC placed the full responsibility for these deaths directly in the hands of the United States Justice Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. That statement reflected more accurately than the words of praise from King, Young, and Wilkins or the comments of Sumner's, Sumner Stone's Orchid for the Day 
the view of the people who had organized Freedom Summer in the first place. Joseph Sullivan and the other FBI agents in Mississippi had done a good job, but SNCC activists still believed they had enemies within the hierarchies of the FBI and the Justice Department. Other FBI mm -hmm. actions during the course of the Freedom Summer would show that the SNCC people were right about Hoover and his men and nearly right about the department. The Cows, Gus T. Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. So I have been told. Wow. Timing is impeccable for this broadcast. We will get to that shortly. Man, oh man, I can only say we have been on the air 13 years Plus, if we make it to February of next year, it'll be 14 years way back. You heard in the audio clip that we just heard when we started April of 2009. Our guest for today was with us. System of white supremacy is still here. So 13 years, we will do it again and chat about the exact same book a major part of the I guess assessment if this is constructive this broadcast and what have you should be if you go back and listen to that broadcast there should not be very much repetition at all like the things that we talked about there got it covered what did we miss the update what's happened in that time period I can say one big thing that has happened in that time period wow the people that have been on the program and our continued coverage investigation of Cointelpro. Wow, John Patash has been on repeatedly. We talked about his book, The FBI's War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders. He references this work uh, and talks a lot of a lot about many of the different subject matter that we'll address today. Uh, Dick Gregory's been with us two times. He's mentioned in the book today and Briefly, we touched on the work that he co-authored with Mark Lane, Murder in Memphis, about the assassination of Dr. King and Cointelpro. Again, that'd be a good one to read if you haven't checked out. Speaking of which, William Pepper was also a guest on the program. He's written extensively, also worked with Coretta Scott King to bring the uh, civil trial uh, about the conspiracy to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was with us uh, later in the year 2009. Millie McGee did the documentary film What's Done in the Dark allegations that she black female is a relative of J. Edgar Hoover major subject in the book Racial Matters uh, and I mean woof you haven't seen that documentary check it out we also talked about her book and the extra that program she worked with Wes Swearingen former FBI agent who also wrote a book about Cointelpro. He hopped on that program since it's all the same subject matter. Uh, in the book club, even, I just mentioned Coretta Scott King. We read her autobiography, My Life, My Love, My Legacy. And Jack Olson in the book club, Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Gijaga 
Pratt, a major figure in the book we're discussing today. So lots of content over the years. That's not even exhausted. That's just some of the major work that I can think of that sticks out immediately. Anywho, our guest for today's broadcast, a history professor emeritus. Uh, he wrote Nixon's Piano, which we were just talking about, ironically. Nixon's Piano, Presidents and Racial Politics from Washington to Clinton. Uh, it was published in 1995. We talked about that book with the author in 2010 on this program. And the book we are revisiting today, Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on black America, 1960 to 1972 originally published in 1989 again again we originally discussed that text here at the cows in april of 2009 uh, a hoot to have him back on the program at this moment rejoining us live from wisconsin our guest dr kenneth o'reilly dr o'reilly are you with us sir it's great to be back Whew. 13 years who would have thought uh, for listeners who maybe were not with us way back when anything that you think would be important for folks to know briefly about who you are and the work that you do. Yeah, I uh, born in New York, uh, went to college in uh, Detroit, I married a Detroit girl. Uh, I had a few job offers, but I wanted an adventure. So I Worked at the University of Alaska up in Anchorage for 22 years, and uh, that's about it. I mean, if you're a historian, you basically live in your own head other other than when you're teaching in the classroom. Uh, So not a real exciting uh, life on on that level. But I did get to interview a lot of interesting people uh, over the years. Uh, My wife had a more exciting life in Alaska. She was a flight nurse up there. Let's see, after leaving Alaska, we came, we had uh, our middle boy was at uh, a track team at University of Wisconsin-Madison, so we decided, well, we might as well come back to Wisconsin. I went to graduate school in Wisconsin. Uh, And so we've been back here for a while. Uh, I taught for fun for a few years at uh, Milwaukee Area Technical College, uh, a two-year college, and I just retired from teaching completely just a few months ago. And so uh, I still do research in FBI files, but my uh, I, since I've come back to Wisconsin, I've, I've taken more of a, a Wisconsin angle on my research, although, the, again, the FBI still surfaces. Uh, I had a book out last year on asphalt, of all things, and that has a, a big Wisconsin hook because a, a million barrels of the dirtiest oil on earth it's called tar sands or oil sands or just natural asphalt up in Canada and Alberta that the oil companies upgrade with chemicals and then they heat it and they pump it by pipeline down to the lower 48 and a million barrels a day comes right through Wisconsin. Uh, so I did an environmental political history of, of a common substance. And what I'm working on now, uh, I, uh, I, project called Milk Wars about dairy farmers and the American dream. And uh, there's a lot of FBI stuff involved in in, in that. Uh, but what's interesting, and maybe this is a good segue into what we're going to talk about tonight, is the FBI, when they looked at dairy farmers or farmers in general, they essentially saw them as good guys, as allies. 
uh, and so the assumption going in, no matter what dairy farmers are doing, and they could be violent. There are riots, and demonstrations, and all sorts of uh, violence. But the the FBI assumption always is these are good guys. They, you know, they they vote Republican. They're on our side, and that's completely different if you look at the the bureau's uh, approach to uh, African Americans. And the assumption is. Uh, is not positive at all. It's incredibly negative. Now, but that's not to say that the, the FBI as an institution is, you know, entirely evil or anything like that. There are decent agents in there. But uh, during a J. Edgar Hoover era, there, on the whole, yeah, the FBI was was pretty rough, pretty bad. And since the J. Edgar Hoover era, there's been progress, but there's also been an awful lot of backsliding. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm not as up as some of your other guests in the past on the post-Hoover FBI. Uh, my area of expertise is, is historic, going back to the first FBI investigations involving African Americans. For example, uh, the Jack Johnson case. Oh, okay. I, that's where I'll yeah. hop in right there. That's sure. one of the big points I want to get in. This broadcast, the word Dr. O'Reilly, specificity. We discussed Jack Johnson last time around. So this program, I'm yes. going to be very targeted because we're not going to do any repetition. There's so much great material in your book. We're going to do all stuff that we did not talk about last time. So no Jack Johnson this time around. You'll have to go back to 2009 and hear all the great all things right. that we had to say there. That's fine. And what he was going to say, ooh-wee, there's so many folks we did not talk about last time where it's the same subject, cowbell. Anywho, great introductory uh, for Dr. O'Reilly. And wow, we talk about and talk about setting the table. We won't talk about Jack Johnson this time, but man, oh, man. Bill Russell is a great segue to get back to racial matters. If folks do not grasp, I'll get to the reason why we're doing this broadcast, but I mean, man, today is all about let's be specific, let's be exact in answering questions and as honest as possible. Dr. O'Reilly, in the name of Bill Russell, NBA champion, Hall of Famer, I have a quick sound clip and then get your response. This is just what they said on television for folks who don't know. Bill Russell just passed away July 31st at the age of 88 years old legendary basketball player and activist. If you see the photograph with one of the subject of Dr. O'Reilly's book, Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, when he said, no way, I'm not doing the draft and the Viet Cong never called me nigger and all the rest of it. Sitting at the table, Bill Russell. This was on TV. Uh, just to, I'm, I'm going to get your response. I just want to play this audio segment really quick, and then we'll get your response, Dr. Sure. O'Reilly. This was just two days ago on television. They were talking about the great Bill Russell. And I'm talking about challenges such as, obviously, there was just outright overt racism that he faced. But I'm talking about in Boston, after leading them to six championships of his 11, it was midway through his career, People broke into his home in suburban Boston, sprayed racial slurs on the walls of his house and left human feces in his bed, in his bed. And he played through that. I'm talking about being under FBI surveillance for being an arrogant Negro, as the FBI termed him. 
Those are the things, and we could go on and on, that Bill Russell played through, won through, excelled through. Bill Russell not even mentioned in the book Racial Matters, but certainly a victim of COINTELPRO white supremacy racism. The defecating in the bed is bad enough, but Bill Russell, a victim of FBI surveillance, Dr. O'Reilly? Well, one thing we're going to find out here. Well, first of all, the the uh, vandalism and, and the racist vandalism of, of Russell's home, uh, probably done by yahoos. I mean, it's, it's the idea that the FBI would do that particular type of thing is, is beyond the pale. But what we are going to find out real soon is uh, some of the things that the FBI did or did not do to Bill Russell, because. Now that Bill Russell has passed, uh, his FBI file uh, can be released. And there are reporters out there who have already uh, put in for the release of that file. Now, that file could be out in a week or it could be out in two years. There's no way to predict that. Uh, once in a while, for a major uh, historic figure, the Bureau will speed up the Freedom of Information Act process. So we could see Bill Russell's FBI file um, lickety-split. But then again, you never know. The typical FOIA process takes years. Now, the odds are that the FBI paid a lot of attention to Bill Russell, um, especially when he started uh, you know, really getting involved, involved in the civil rights movement after Medgar Evers' assassination. But exactly what's in there, we, we don't know. And we will find out uh, shortly. Uh, and the, the interesting thing would be uh, electronic surveillance. Because one thing about the FBI, if the FBI wiretaps one person, then you'll have what the Bureau calls walk-ins. And uh, the, the classic example of a walk-in uh, was the uh, Muhammad Ali draft evasion trial. And uh, Muhammad Ali had good lawyers, and they kept asking questions. And simple questions, did the government, did the Justice Department, did the FBI wiretap Muhammad Ali? And, of course, the answer is no. But then the next question is, well, did uh, was Muhammad Ali overheard on any wiretaps? And the answer to that question is yes. Well, then who was the FBI wiretapping that picked up a Muhammad Ali conversation? And the answer there is uh, Martin Luther King. And so with Bill Russell, I'm sure uh, I'm pretty almost positive there's going to be an FBI file. And I'm almost positive there's going to be electronic surveillance uh, um, reference in that file, because uh, I doubt the FBI had a wiretap on Bill Russell, but the FBI did have wiretaps. I bet a nickel on some of the people Bill Russell is talking to on the telephone. Martin Luther King, for sure, and probably a number of others. Now, Bill Russell went to Mississippi uh, after the Megar Evers assassination. And the FBI, again, probably, we don't know yet, was extremely interested in that. Because the way the FBI thought, what's Bill Russell going down there for? Well, we know why he's going down there, to run an integrated basketball camp. And the Evers family asked him to do that. And Bill Russell stepped up, just like he did in every game seven he ever played. And he went to Mississippi and and did that. 
But the FBI doesn't think like that. The FBI thinks Bill Russell's going to Mississippi. Uh, that increases the chance of violence and rioting and all that stuff. So, uh, again, I, I would bet there's a pretty extensive uh, bureau file on Bill Russell. And my guess, again, is we're probably going to see that pretty soon. I don't think the FBI will, we will be able to hold that back for years. I think it'll be pushed out pretty quick. Mm. Stay tuned. That is a homework si- assignment for the future, uh, definitely, uh, just to, to see exactly what wiretaps, all of it, what information, other people that he was talking to and all the rest of it. Incidentally, uh, Bill Russell talks about going down to Mississippi uh, in his book or in his books actually he talks about that a few times but neither here nor there uh much about and again just for folks to grab bill russell played basketball yes he did hang out with muhammad ali and all that and being recognized rightly as he should for the extraordinary work that he did they call it civil rights i'll stay producing justice what he was trying to do Ooh. if he's being watched considered arrogant uppity Oh, my. Oh, my. Let's get direct to the book now. Racial matters and even being super specific. That is the word for the day. Being specific. Uh, The reason that we're doing this program today, I don't like going back and doing the same book over and over on the program and repetition and all that. We had Davis Houck, white scholar on the program last week. He is the Fannie Lou Hamer scholar of rhetoric at Florida State. I'm probably going to have to say that a couple times. We had him on the program last week. We talked about his brand new book. Just came out a few weeks, or excuse me, a few days ago. Black Bodies in the River in Search of Freedom Summer. And I played at the beginning the exchange with Dr. Houck where I asked him. He said he had his book in your hands, but it's been some years. That suggests to me that he had not read your book, which has an entire chapter on Mississippi burning. I said, even before I got really deep into his book, I said, man, Pro is not mentioned here at all. Now you heard what he said. Hey, that's, you know, didn't really start at this point and all that. And I'm <laughs> Dr. O'Reilly's book is 1960 to 1972, but forget that. As I said before, when he was here way back in 09, he didn't start us off with the civil rights movement. He started us off with, Marcus Garvey and even when I spoke with him last week he's back that up to debt peonage if you want to like black people always have to be spied on so I said man what do you think Dr. O'Reilly of him not mentioning Cointel Pro in a book that features J. Edgar Hoover it features Ella Baker Bob Moses Fannie Lou Hamer he's the scholar of her named after her at Florida State University John Lewis the late great he mentions all these people who like Bill Russell probably have really dense Cointel Pro FBI files and you don't have a mention in this program at all before I get your on air response to that Dr. O'Reilly this is one I'm going to get my Jack Johnson on like oh man don't let me get a book that I've read a few times and get to an interview and offer like oh man I could be real uppity about what I want to talk about page 2 Dr. O'Reilly writes Fannie Hamer's second encounter with the FBI occurred on the second Sunday in June 1963 after she stepped off a bus in Winona, Mississippi 
Hamer and five companions were returning from a voter registration workshop in nearby South Carolina when their bus pulled in for a rest stop. June Johnson and James West went to the lunch counter to sit with Anel Ponder, Uvester Simpson, and Rosie Mary Freeman went to the whites-only restroom. What might have been an uneventful encounter, perhaps ending with a white waitress mumbling about how she can't take no more, and white customers mumbling about Negroes using the wrong toilets, ended disastrously. Winona Police Chief Thomas Harrod ordered the five blacks out and arrested them on the parking lot when Ponder began jotting down the license plate number of his cruiser. Get that one, too the chief told Montgomery County Sheriff Earl W. Patridge after Hamer left the bus to see if she could help. The officers brutalized four members of the group at the Montgomery County Jail. They botched the first beating. June Johnson, a 14-year-old girl in a pink dress, bled profusely, so they used blackjacks on the others, interrogating Ponder about her interest in the license plate while batting her head and shoulders. They wanted to know who we would make a report to. I told him the federal government. They said, who do you mean? Bobby Kennedy? They forced two black prisoners to pound Hamer, an assault that permanently damaged a kidney and an eye. A few hours later, Chief Arad and his men locked up a seventh voter registration worker, Lawrence Gayat, who had come to the jail to see about charges and bail. Standing Guyot up against a cell wall, they pummeled him with fists and gun barrels. They beat him just as bad as they did me, Hamer said. The only difference was they'd taken paper and tried to burn his private off, and then turned him over to the private sector for a terror-filled automobile ride and another beating in the hills surrounding the town. Things ended as they had begun with blood. Everyone knew the FBI would investigate the Winona incident to determine whether the police had violated the civil rights of Hamer and her companions. After returning, Guyot to the jail, one of the officers flashed a phony federal badge and asked him to tell me all about what happened. When four or five real FBI agents showed up, it appeared to ponder that they were cooperating with the chief in a way. I gave them a statement and they wrote it down, she remembered. But they didn't ask me to sign it. I just don't trust them, you know, Hamer said after her jailhouse interview with the FBI. He say, well, we would like to talk to you. And I said, well, I just can't do it. You see, I didn't know whether if I said what had happened to me, then he could tell the jailer, and I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't. But we sure wanted, if we could have just seen anybody. I reckon now, God is the only refuge we have because there wasn't nobody there from the Justice Department, nobody there to say nothing. Just the Negro out by their self. For Fanny Hamer, the FBI was too intimidating, too friendly with the other side, and above all, too late.
she found herself alone in her cell alone with her god even with the FBI there to interview her and to write a report for the Justice Department. The Bureau's agents had been with Hamer in a more timely manner, though on the day in Sunflower County when she joined SNCC as a field secretary. They were with her a year later in Atlantic City, New Jersey, too, when she served as vice chair of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and told the Winona story before network television cameras and the credentials committee at the Democratic National Convention. And they were with her when she went to Washington, D.C. at the beginning of the new decade to speak for a national holiday in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Bureau agents filed information about Hamer under the racial matters caption and sometimes even under the 100 classification, the subversive classification. They followed her not to protect her, but to spy on her. That's where I'll stop at. That's on page three of racial matter. So now we'll come back to my question. I'm going to frame it this way for Dr. O'Reilly since he's an educator. So you have a student, Davis Hauck. He comes to you, the Fannie Lou Hamer Scholar of Rhetoric at Florida State University, but he's your student. He says, okay, I haven't read your book. I have it in my hand, but I haven't read it. Didn't even read the chapter on Freedom Summer, but whatever. Didn't even read the first two pages, whatever. I wrote my book on Freedom Summer, and there's no mention of Cointelpro. What grade do you give that student, and what's your response? What's your reasoning well, for the grade? What, what I would do is I would tell that student to go back and look for context. Now, uh, Professor Hauk, on one level, is technically correct. There, there is not a formal FBI counterintelligence program aimed at, at what the Bureau called black hate groups or black nationalist groups until uh, 1967. But that's very misleading because 10 years earlier, the FBI launches a COINTELPRO against the Communist Party. And a, a great deal of that bled over into uh, black America. And then secondly, in 1964, during Freedom Summer, the FBI launched a COINTELPRO against white hate groups, the Ku Klux Klan and so forth. And so COINTELPRO is part of the context of the FBI's attitude toward the civil rights movement. And then third, uh, even though there's no formal counterintelligence program against black America or black nationalists until 1967, there's many, many, many informal actions. And so that all provides uh, context. And so when you're uh, re researching, uh, like Professor Halk was researching, uh, how many African-American uh, people were killed during Freedom Summer, uh, that's part of the backstory. And you, you really shouldn't ignore that. It's there. The FBI is not, not simply uh, this heroic agency as they were portrayed, for example, in the the film with Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe, the film called Mississippi Burning. Uh, a, a lot of what the FBI did uh, in terms of context is just horrific, 
long before uh, the counterintelligence program began. And if you look at it as human beings, you, you really have this uh, uh, conundrum. Uh, if you're an FBI agent and you go into that uh, Winona jail and you see uh, a little girl, they, June Johnson, basically 14, she's a little girl. And I interviewed her many years later. And, and you know, and you see that. She's in a cell. She's been brutalized. And then you see a grown man, uh, Lawrence Guy, and a grown woman, Fanny Hamer, also beat to smithereens. And, and all you do is, you know, ask questions. I mean, heads should roll. There should be arrests. There should be action. But we live in a country where uh, the United States Supreme Court has really never dealt with the question of whether federal police, state and local police, whatever, have a responsibility to protect American citizens from, from violence, from harm. We don't get a decision in the U.S. Supreme Court on that question until the year 2005. And the great irony there is that decision uh, backs up those FBI agents who just stare at an unconscious 14-year-old girl who's bleeding heavily and in a jail cell. And the Supreme Court said that's okay. Because in 2005, in a uh, Supreme Court case called Castle Rock v. Gonzalez, the Supreme Court said that the police, on any level, police do not have a constitutional duty to protect a person from harm. And, and that also, I guess, uh, as a, a sideline here, I should mention the police model, right? Protect and serve. But uh, it doesn't mean to protect people. It's more closely to protect property, but not white-owned property i'd be specific i'm gonna reel us back in because i didn't get an answer to my question and there's a reason and i'm gonna like i said buddy i'm gonna be on my jack johnson hang on hang on one second hang on no we need accurate i don't know what that means i just asked for accurate here because we're being scholars you're a scholar you're a historian who's written about this I'm a historian i studied under julian bond so i'm just about being accurate and it's beyond that there is a long history of white historians, white people, period, lying and practicing racism and minimizing what government officials did. This is government sanctioned. We talked last time. One of the big points you made was, man, people reviewed racial matters in, in the press and they just chalked it all up to J. Edgar Hoover. That's not the point I was making at all. This was a system to specifically target black people. So I'm reeling back to my question. The Fannie Lou Hamer scholar of rhetoric at Florida State wrote a book about Freedom Summer and did not say a mumbling word, not even in the footnotes about COINTELPRO or even just, hey, nefarious FBI activity, even, hey, J. Edgar Hoover doesn't seem to like black people. None of that. I'm going to go back to your book one more time because you didn't answer my question. That just isn't going to work today, buddy. Know this book too well. So let's go back to the book. Page 67. Dr. O'Reilly writes, With Hoover and the administration each for their own reasons, unwilling to provide the requested protection, the voter registration workers and the entire civil rights movement were 
bound to suffer. The FBI's investigation of five instances of violence aimed at SNCC in southwest Mississippi in the late summer and fall of 1961 helped dissipate the naivete Fleming described. The first episode occurred on August 15 when the Mississippi Highway Patrol arrested Robert Moses, big character in Dr. Houck's book, a SNCC worker who left Hamilton College and Harvard and a comfortable teaching job for the poverty and danger of the Delta. Billy Caston, a cousin of the Amite County Sheriff, beat Bob Moses bloody a week later after he went to the courthouse in Liberty with three local blacks who were trying to register. Two weeks later, a white mob attacked Travis Britt on the Amite Courthouse lawn. On September 7, John T. John Q. Woods, registrar of voters in the Walthall County seat of Tylertown, hit John Hardy in the back of the head with a gun barrel. And on September 25, state legislator Eugene H. Hurst shot and killed Herbert Lee during a confrontation at a cotton gin. This is all described in uh, Dr. Houck's book. Not only did the FBI refuse to protect these civil rights workers, it neglected its investigative duties in the aftermath of all five cases. Bureau reports sent to the Civil Rights Division failed to note the nine stitches in Bob Moses' scalp and face and contained little data on the lead killing regarding powder burns, the angle of the bullet entering the head, and conflicting witness statements. After Moses sent his own report of events in southwest, in southwest Mississippi to the Justice Department, John Doerr compared it to the FBI report and ordered the Bureau's agents back into the field. One of those agents, the resident agent from Natchez, threatened Moses with bodily harm for going behind his back for calling him a liar. I'm going to stop there. This is what I'm saying. Oh, no, this is not about politeness. This is about, hey, let's be accurate historical scholars. So, again, Dr. O'Reilly, a student comes to you and okay. says, oh, yeah, I had your book in my hand, Dr. O'Reilly, but I didn't read it. And I wrote a whole book about Freedom Summer, Bob Moses on every page and didn't say one word about Cointelpro, FBI, racism, white supremacy. I, I'm not real sure what you want me to say here. What the, the You can criticize Dr. Houck's book, uh, and this would be a harsh criticism, in that you can say he's minimizing racist violence in Mississippi during Freedom Summer. And they're not, you know, they're not black bodies by the dozens being pulled out of the rivers and, and so forth. Um, but I don't think you can criticize them on, you know, strictly on the COINTELPRO angle. Yes, should that be mentioned in the book? Absolutely, for context. Um, but if you're simply looking, as he says, for examples of uh, bodies found during Freedom Summer, well, that's what his book is about. Now, it, does that mean there isn't a flaw in the book? It's an enormous flaw. What are the motivations for that? Uh, 
you know, they, we've just heard you describe uh, Dr. Halk's motivation. I'm not sure I would go that far. At the same time, I'm not sure how you can look at Freedom Summer and, and see it as anything but uh, a, a bloodbath. And, uh, and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, they had uh, a clear vision of what would happen in Mississippi. And SNCC went into Mississippi. The NAACP generally stayed out, with exceptions, Megar Evers and the Jackson demonstrations, because it was just too intense. Uh, resistance in Mississippi is too violent, and you didn't have a good ratio between re- civil rights resources invested in Mississippi and the, and the return. Uh, but SNCC didn't care about that. Uh, and SNCC actually, uh, uh, under Marion Barry and others, actually recruited white uh, college students and recent graduates from the North uh, to come down to Mississippi. And they told them flat out, uh, you know, if you get lynched down here, uh, that's horrible. But on the other hand, uh, that will bring national attention to the problem. And so that's how bad violence is in Mississippi. And to ignore that, I think you're really any book that ignores that or does not pay enough attention to that is uh, doing a disservice. Um, now, oh, I would just this, I'll stop you there just because I want to be clear. He's not minimizing the violence done to black people. He's or it's a total omission of wait a minute the FBI had a whole surveillance yeah. program and network to neutralize and disrupt the very people that they're supposed to be coming down to protect yeah. investigate yeah. all of that even as you said they're not even doing their investigative duties as you said to yeah. at least come and take they're not even doing yeah. that during freedom summer and none of this being mentioned in the book at all that's what I'm specifically pointing yeah. to yeah. like and I specifically, I just asked for a grade. You're an educator. You give out a lot of grades, right? Like I just asked, what grade do you give a book that mentions well, that, I mean, that doesn't mention that, that at all? I, yeah, I would say that's a big enough flaw. I just have a student go back and rewrite the paper. Now, you make a good point there about FBI responsibilities. And if you look at Fannie Hamer, they, they were very unwilling FBI agents to investigate the, the violence inflicted on Fannie Hamer, June Johnson, and hundreds and hundreds of others. They're unwilling to do that, they, and they had to be forced into doing that. And even then, they, they, as you, you know, in the book mentions John Doerr had uh, at the Justice Department had to lean on them to go back and actually do a real investigation, and they still wouldn't do it. On the other hand, the FBI didn't need any encouragement at all uh, for wiretaps, surveillance, uh, mail openings, all sorts of things. And so they're reluctant to protect uh, civil rights. They're reluctant to investigate police brutality. Uh, but they're enthusiastic about uh, spying on black people. Now, earlier you mentioned barbershops. And one of the things the FBI did, which is, and they did it in Mississippi, but they did it all over the North, too, is they had what they called, the FBI called a ghetto informant program. And they had other informant programs, too, like Black Pro and things like that. But the ghetto informant program, one of the main targets was to uh, find an African-American willing to take FBI dollars to report 
on what's happening in whatever neighborhood in black America. And often uh, these informants would hang out in barbershops and they'd uh, dictate, they tell an FBI agent what was going on and the FBI agent would uh, pay them. Now they weren't all paid. There are thousands of them, but most of them were. And so when you start talking about uh, this and the excerpts from my book that you read, Yes, the FBI is going after civil rights activists uh, during the Jagger Hoover era. But the FBI is also going after, you know, black America gener- generically. And so that's uh, a really tough uh, criticism of the Bureau. But it's not just the Bureau. The, the FBI did what it did during the Hoover years because uh, that's what Jagger Hoover wanted. But that's not really the issue there. The issue is the FBI did what it did because it wanted to, but the real issue is the FBI did what it did because the United States government allowed the FBI and even encouraged the FBI to do these things. Mm. Context. And so, yeah. And the uh, in terms of civil rights enforcement, uh, during at least until Nixon's elected in 68 and becomes president in January 1969, before that, the 1960s, in the height of the civil rights movement, you have Democratic Party presidents. You've got John Kennedy, and then after the assassination, uh, you have Lyndon Johnson. And the Democratic Party is, is extremely uh, sensitive to what's going on within the civil rights movement and within black America, because they know there's huge political risks involved. Oh, wait now a the Democratic you have, to, you have to off my question a little bit. That's why I said specificity. Just stick on the question because yeah, I'm going to get to that. Hold on one yeah. second. The reason that I put so much emphasis, and this is really for listeners, look at most of the people, most of the historians are white, like Dr. O'Reilly, Dr. Houck. They're white, but when they write about this time period, he's the his interests include the Black Freedom Movement And he's the Fannie Lou Hamer scholar at Florida State. You heard what she had to say about the FBI. She didn't even trust them when white people, even when most non-white people, when we write about these events, Cointelpro is not mentioned at all. I got moo up there like for cows, minimize, obfuscate, that's in the book repeatedly, and omit. That's what happens with this. We're talking about a program that resulted in people dying, going to jail unjustly and all kinds of illegal, nefarious activity that is government sanctioned. And it doesn't get minimized, obfuscated, omitted. That is standard operating procedure. And that, in my view, I don't know if it will. I conclude, I suspect it's probably deliberate to keep people very misinformed about what happened, why things happen, what white supremacy racism is and how it works. Especially if you tell me it's not, I never heard of this. I don't know what Dr. O'Reilly's book is. I've had it in my hand. I just didn't include the material. That's where I look with extraordinary suspicion at the Fannie Lou Hamer scholar. At any rate, the other point that we brought up and we raised this issue on the phone Man, I failed to bring this up last time. That's why I said we can't do repeats. We got to do new stuff. Things that I failed to get last time around. I'm skipping to 173. 
You write FBI Inspector Joseph Sullivan led the effort. Oh, let me even skip down through this. So they did all the work. Freedom Summer. Yum, yum, yum. We find James Cheney and the bodies of these two white boys. The dredging, dredging process turned up several black corpses and the parts thereof. That's Herbert uh, Herbert Orsby including a torso clad in a core t-shirt. Many agents missed vacation time and only a few got home for Christmas. They overlooked nothing, missed no angle. We also have a long line of individual Negro women with whom the sheriff has had sexual relations. The director told the president, we are digging into that more for persuasive evidence on him when we bring him in so we can put pressure on him. I was stunned that I didn't bring this up with you last time when we spoke on the phone. You connected this to the Catholic Church and even added more details. Can you share with our listeners? Yeah, this sheriff's um, a a big part of county sheriff responsibilities is really simple. Not exclusively, but they're largely jailers. And if you look at the history of confinement and the history of jailers, the guards in prisons, jails, and so forth. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of uh, physical and sexual abuse. And it's not only targeted at women. Uh, young boys are another um, principal target. And, every, and a lot of people think, well, that's just the Catholic Church and the, the pedophilia scandal with the priests and the bishops and so forth. But no, not, that's not true. You, you have sexual abuse of young boys in jails and prisons, and it's, it's just monumental. Now, what you've got here, the, the, the excerpt you just read about Southern sheriffs uh, sexually uh, assaulting, raping, abusing African-American women and, and girls, too, underage. Yeah, that is a, an enormous problem. And historically, and that's where I am, a historian, I mean, that goes back uh, you know, to John Rolfe and Jamestown and, you know, and Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Um, and that is just, uh, it's it, it just ugly. Now, the FBI thinking that they could use that to put pressure on a sheriff is, is funny. It's not funny in a ha-ha sense, but that, that's just not going to happen. A sheriff's not going to take that seriously. Um, and that's how deep racism is dug in into communities like Neshoba County, Mississippi at the time in 1964. A sheriff wouldn't worry about that at all. But but it's just horrific to, to think about. Um, on the other hand, a lot of these issues we're talking about, they do not go away. You still have sexual abuse in, in jails and prisons uh, today in the United States. Uh, and uh, some of, sometimes it's... Sometimes it gets prosecuted. Back then, it'd be very rare to be prosecuted. I suppose that's progress, but we still have a, just a long, long way to go. And on issues like that, there's another uh, contrast here. The FBI didn't really pursue that. Our southern sheriffs uh, raping black women. Um, the FBI doesn't spend a whole lot of attention on that, but the FBI spent an enormous amount of attention on the question of is Martin is Martin Luther King having affairs with women? Is Martin Luther King monogamous? Is he uh, faithful to Coretta? And not just Martin Luther King, other civil rights people as well. And so where you have uh, individual uh, civil rights leaders who may or may not have, you know, committed indiscretions, 
in other words, had girlfriends, affairs, and all that stuff. The FBI takes that seriously, and yet they ignore this, or largely ignore this horrific issue of jailers sexually abusing prisoners. And again, what we're what we're talking about in the Shelby County, we're talking about black girls and black women who are not necessarily civil rights activists. They're just uh, they're just prey for law enforcement down there. Now that doesn't mean all Southern sheriffs are rapists, but uh, the FBI apparently had some evidence that it, it's a major problem, and yet the FBI doesn't really pursue that. Mm. context of white supremacy you walked me right to where i wanted to go because this is such a a major sure yeah Yeah. martin Luther king has a girlfriend that's a big issue let me Uh, i'll read raping black women is not an issue (laughs) i'll read because this is this is a huge issue that comes up all through the text uh throughout and as you said not just with dr martin luther king we talked about jack johnson last time but i mean you got Paul Robeson, the Panthers, Dr. It just comes over and over and over. So you write, let's see if I can share a few that are bunched together here. So you got one, this is on page 149, Black Dream, Red Medicine. I also think it's important for listeners, this even goes to Dr. Houck's point, one of the major points that you make in the book, again, in terms of FBI surveillance of black people, even before it's called the FBI, when it's the Bureau of Intelligence, that's all the way back that peonage, Jack Johnson, that is forever. However, after the March on Washington, huge escalation where, oh my gosh, what could happen? This could destroy everything in the system of white supremacy and white people's control and way of life in this part of the world. Huge escalation after the March on Washington. This really bothers a lot of white people in power, J. Edgar Hoover and other folks. Uh, so it's 1963, subsequently, uh, this is on page 149, Hoover's obsession with the sexual habits of Martin Luther King and other civil rights activists posed an irony. The suspicion that the director himself was homosexual followed him for most of his career. Not even the FBI's own agents were quite sure about Hoover as a result of his strange relationship with Clyde Tolson, his second in command, with whom he took all his meals and vacationed over a period of 30 years. I don't think anybody really knows. Now, this one is clumped. As I said, there are a bunch. It's all throughout the book. I'm trying to pick some of the colorful ones that are close together and kind of get your thoughts as to why this ends up being such a, a consistent I don't know, obsession. Uh, here we, Here's another one. This is on page 151, I guess. 152. 152. Flip a little bit uh, further ahead. All the same chapter, Racial Matters. Uh, you right up oh, went too far. Not 152. Back up a little bit. This is on page 151. I had it right the first time. No, I didn't see my my highlight there. 151. FBI interest in Martin Luther King's private life was not unprecedented. Some of the older movement people had a clear sense of deja vu. What Jesse Jackson called the director's peeping Tomism, in quotes, his sick interest of the white male in black sexuality was arguably arguably present in his predecessors as well. In December 1964, only a few days after he met with King, Hoover told U.S. News and World Report publisher David Lawrence that the white slave traffic 
act was supposed to protect the virtue of womanhood. His interest in interracial sex and the morality of individual black activists was nothing if not consistent. The old General Intelligence Division of 1919 focused on the specter of miscegenation, but so did the Domestic Intelligence Division of 1953. It is interesting to note that one of the Communist Party's concrete demands advocated the removal of all legal restrictions and social censorship of interracial marriage in the southern states for the director interracial sex, extramarital sex, premarital sex, homosexuality, the irony, bisexuality, and sexual deviancy was all something that could be used to discredit political adversaries and it was something to which Martin Luther King and in a broader sense the civil rights movement as a whole during the 1960s appeared to be particularly vulnerable Look at that. The FBI interest in Dr. King as the top alley cat accompanied a parallel interest in the sex lives of virtually anyone interested in the subject of racial justice. I'll stop there, even though it just goes on and on and on and on and on. What in the world, Dr. O'Reilly? Yeah, yeah, that, 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 you know, I'm a historian and. I didn't put this in the book, so this is new. And it might be a little too esoteric, but we'll, we'll see. I'll try to do it really quickly. This goes back uh, to the first slaves coming over, and it also goes back to American Indians. Uh, and so when the one way to control slaves is to dehumanize them. And one of the uh, methods of dehumanizing African slaves was to portray them as like superhuman in terms of physical strength, but also sexual prowess. And that, that, you know, racist myth of the beast is hundreds and hundreds of years old. So you've got that. And then at the same time, uh, believe it or not, there's a, uh, there's an American Indian hook. And when the Europeans came over, uh, you know, with smallpox and a lot of the Native American tribes, you know, wiped out or nearly wiped out. And some of the tribes, uh, particularly in the New England area, elsewhere, but particularly in the New England area, uh, engaged in what are called captivity raids. In other words, they would raid Puritan uh, villages and they would uh, kidnap young girls and young or girls and young women. In other words, uh, females of childbearing age, because they could get pregnant, they could have babies, and you could build the tribe back up, that tribe, that population decimated by smallpox. So you had these captivity rates. And so out of that, between slaves and uh, Native American captivity rates, you have this, you know, we got to protect the women and children. Uh, that attitude. And what you get out of J. Edgar Hoover essentially is a 20th century version of that type of uh, a view of, uh, of, of black people, as, especially black men. It's, you know, beasts. And they're just, uh, you know, you just have to monitor them. You have to control them. And, and it's just, it's just ugly and, it, and it's silly. And, and, but attitudes like that don't go away. I mean, look where we are right now with the uh, anti-abortion decision out of the Supreme Court, uh, 
there's a movement within the Republican Party right now to uh, not just you know make sure abortion is outlawed, but to outlaw birth control. And so uh, this stuff will will surface uh, at different times. The difference is with Black America, it's consistent. Uh, with White America, it comes and goes. Here, the, for White America, the Comstock Act uh, after the Civil War, and now we got the. Uh, Supreme Court all hot to kill uh, abortion and birth control, but that's episodic. Hmm. You, you black got... America is not episodic. It is, is consistent. It's, consistent. It's, you know, twenty four seven, three sixty five. Consistent. That's the word you used in the book. You, you, uh, within all of this uh, obsession on black male sexuality, beast, rapist, Doctor Francis Cresswellsing again. Uh, you were telling us, uh, Doctor, these allegations. Doctor uh, King had a, a white uh, paramour, some sort of uh, lover. Well, the, the the common view is, uh, yeah, King was not monogamous. He was not faithful to Corinna. Um, you know, but that that's you know that's what did King say about this? Whatever happened, that's between me and my God and me and my wife. It, it's a private. A private matter. Um, eventually that will come out there. The FBI, uh, put not just wiretaps on Martin Luther King, but as Martin Luther King went around the country, he of course had to sleep. So he stayed in motel rooms, including, of course, the Lorraine motel where he was assassinated. And the FBI put, uh, microphone recordings in those uh, motel rooms. And eventually those, uh, the transcripts from those recordings, uh, it will be released. Um, now that's a little bit down the road, uh, but until they're released, do we have absolute confirmation that Martin Luther King was not monogamous? No, we don't. But the general consensus is uh, that that he did uh, what's the cliche he, that he did fool around. Um, now that shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, uh, celebrities and Martin Luther King is a great man, a great civil rights leader, but he's also a celebrity. And uh, it, it, lots of celebrities have been um, unfaithful, famous people, right? you know, whether it be rock and roll stars or any other type of celebrity. That's uh, almost an occupational hazard. But <laughs> but, regard, but, but regardless, uh, Martin Luther King's right. If he did fool around, that's between him and his God. It's between him and his wife. Have you, have you read... Uh... Correct, and I'm not I'm, for listeners. I'm totally not on the morality uh, thing. If he did do that, that's on them and all the rest of it. Have you read Coretta Scott King's autobiography, "My Life, My Love, My Legacy"? No, I haven't read it all. I've read it. I've read some of it, but no, I haven't read the entire book. It's hard enough to keep up with the, the things I'm currently researching. It's, oh. it's, we're in the information age, and stuff is overwhelming. For sure. She vehemently uh, rejects the allegations that Dr. King like confessed that he was unfaithful to her. She said that that is not true, that he was totally faithful and all this, that yeah. he admitted all of that, that that is a total lie. Yeah. I'm just bringing that up because we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. and she, she might be right. She might be right. But as an historian, uh, now that fellow you talked about, Dr. Hulk, uh, he's in, in rhetoric, I think, and not in history. But like, uh, if I was an English professor, I would say 
Coretta Scott King is an unreliable narrator on that issue. I'm not saying she's wrong. She might be right, but she has a vested interest. And so you can't take her assertion uh, by itself. You need to verify that. Just oh. like you need to verify the other side of it. Did King have girlfriends? Yes. Well, if you think he did, you need to verify that. And we're at the point now where if you say, like Coretta Scott King said, he didn't have girlfriends, well, that needs to be verified, too, because the idea that King did fool around is embedded in the, in the culture. Absolutely. And the reason that I bring that up is because I don't hear and I, I totally that is logical like that is a thousand percent and, and, that holds up for yeah. just and, hold and on one second it, let me make this point dr o'reilly that what you just right. stated that holds forever let's evaluate what coretta scott king said and hey she's married to him she absolutely does have a vested interest absolutely however so does the other side and we break we raised this point with john yeah. patash he wrote uh the fbi's war on tupac shakur and black leaders and he said wait a minute as you just stated importantly it's widely thought within the culture, meaning many, many people think, oh yeah, Dr. King fooled around. It's in many, many books. Dr. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson and Ralph Abernathy, many people have written books where this is detailed in some shape, form, even though, as you said, the tapes haven't been released. We talked about this with John Patash and said it's even in Ava DuVernay's film, uh, Selma, where they have this mythical uh, Dr. King admits all this to Coretta Scott King, where I just said she wrote a book saying that that never happened, but it's widespread. John Patash, we talked about that and saying, dang, is the source for everyone's widespread belief that this happened? J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI's rumors that this was happening? And like, is that our source for this? Or is there any other evidence that, yes, Dr. King was fooling around, he was not faithful, like, wait, I mean, if our source for this is J. Edgar Hoover. Like, wait a minute. Now, how seriously should we weigh right. these allegations? Well, yeah, I, I don't really want to go down too far down that particular rabbit hole. Uh, Dave Garrow is the, the most controversial figure here. Uh, he's a, a really good researcher, uh, but he had a story out two years ago about uh, Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King and sex that was very, very controversial. And Garrow also claimed that he uh, he found and interviewed some of the women that King slept with. But, but again, who knows? Now, your point, or the point I made and that you seconded about information being embedded in the culture, exactly right. Part of the FBI's mission is to embed uh, beliefs into the culture and and the irony is the beliefs don't necessarily have to be false they can be true or they can be false but the fbi wants the culture to accept certain things uh, and, the, and the bureau has been doing that since uh, at least since uh, 1946 and there's uh, an fbi executive conference meeting uh, about that time where the bureau talks about uh, the mission of getting the American people to think a precise way about communism. And if you push forward in the 1960s, the FBI, wanted, their mission is to get the American people to think a precise way about black Americans. And so that, that idea of embedding things in the culture is, is pretty consistent in FBI history, at least during the Hoover era. 
Context of White Supremacy. Again, our guest, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly. We're discussing his book, Racial Matters, the FBI's Secret File on Black America, 1960 to 1972, uh, the second time around uh, that we are discussing this book. I see some of the folks who dialed in uh, who have questions. I know some folks went and made sure they read your book so they could be prepared to ask questions uh, this time around. Uh, Before we do so, I want to do an association. I'm going to give the details and all of that uh, real quick. I'm just just doing this for educational purposes I'll say Dr. O'Reilly bear with me and I'll, I'll just give the names at first and then we'll give the details and all that for listeners who are not informed I'm sure at least some of them are not informed so first up the name Roy Mitchell is that familiar to you yes who's Roy Mitchell uh not that familiar though give, give me a second to think get sure. through my my Oh, the FBI guy, sure. Okay. Is that who you're talking about? Give me one more sentence. Or, well, in fact, hold FBI. on one second. You, you've given me enough. Just pause right there because I said this is for educational purposes. So we got the first name I said was Roy Mitchell. So hold that for listeners. So let's try yeah, this. And I think William O'Neill. But I can say that again. William O'Neill. Significance oh, of that. The, yeah, yeah, the. Uh, the the informant and the Fred Hampton shooting. Gotcha. For listeners, now I just want you to think about that. I said that was for educational purposes. My question for all of this is we'll go into detail about Fred Hampton and and the shooting and all that. Um, But for Roy Mitchell, as he said now, that is the the FBI guy in Chicago. Yes. Yes. He immediately, William O'Neill now, if I asked folks out there who is Roy Mitchell? I suspect most people. Oh, William O. And especially since the movie Judas and the Black Messiah came out. Oh my gosh. I suspect it would be a whole lot of. Oh my God. Coon of the decade. And he poisoned Fred Hampton and, and all the rest. Like, man, I would much rather it be that everybody knows who Roy Mitchell is. And even further now, how many ghetto informants did you employ Roy Mitchell for how long what did they do like how much what was your salary because we got all the details on William O'Neill like how much money he got and the car and everything what was your salary Roy Mitchell like how long did you work that's what I mean in terms of how some of the information comes out but anywho uh before I get to the listeners Roy Mitchell, William O'Neill, very important for Fred Hampton and, and how the FBI escalated their Cointel Pro activities later in the 1970s. I go to the book. You write this is on page 314. So quite a bit later in the book, 19, uh, the assassination of Fred Hampton uh, happens in 1969, late into the year, December 1969. <coughs> Excuse me. Special agent in charge Johnson had no more luck when he claimed that the FBI had done nothing wrong in the assassination of Fred Hampton. The information acquired by O'Neill and disseminated to the police was routine and strictly a matter of local interest. He said what they did with the information was none of our concern. The documents, however, were included in the counterintelligence file and bore such captions as operations being affected 
and tangible results obtained, end quote. They showed that Johnson's office had tried to persuade the Chicago Police Department to conduct the raid before state's attorney Hanrahan finally agreed to do it. Roy Mitchell, furthermore, had met with Hanrahan's representatives in a series of pre-raid off-the-record conferences. And when arguing for the informant's bonus, the Racial Matters Squad supervisor, Robert Piper, claimed that O'Neill's information provided the only source for the raid. I'll stop there. Did you? I know you said you're not as up on the current events and stuff. Did you happen to see the film Judas and the Black Messiah about the assassination? Yes. Yes. Oh, what did you think? What did you think? What did you think? Well, I mean, I thought it's a good movie. It's a little. uh, Jagger Hoover was not that uh, obsessed with Fred Hampton, though, as the the film portrayed. Um, The people that were really truly obsessed with Fred Fred Hampton. And I'm not trying to minimize the FBI rule. What the FBI did here was just incredibly reckless. And it was reckless precisely because the Bureau set it up so Chicago police officers would, heavily armed Chicago police officers would conduct that raid. And uh, as we know from, you know, Breonna Taylor and all sorts of uh, no-knock police shootings in the recent past, that is not a good scenario to send in jacked up uh, city police into an apartment where uh, you lead them to believe that the black Panthers are in there with an armory, which was not true by the way. So it, it, so I, I think in terms of to get back to the movie, I think uh, as an historian, one flaw I would see with that movie is uh, if the FBI was going to run around assassinating people or arranging assassinations, uh, Fred Hampton would not be in the top 50. It wouldn't even be in the top 100. Uh, there are lots of other people. The FBI um, was, in, in terms of J. Edgar Hoover and, and senior officials, there are lots of people that the FBI was more worried about than, than Fred Hampton. Uh, now, is that true for the Chicago uh, FBI office? You know, Moore and Johnson and those guys? No, that's not true uh, for them. But the people who are really... Uh, wired up to go in shooting where the Chicago police and uh, and that's where the FBI was reckless. I mean, what the heck did they think would happen when you set this raid up? And this the raid was set up through the uh, Cook County State's Attorney's Office. And the Cook County State's Attorney has a, a detail of Chicago police officers assigned to him. And, uh, and they're the ones that went in. And there's an irony there. One police officer who uh, did most of the shooting was an, an African-American uh, guy. His nickname was Gloves, James Glove Davis. And he was a black police, but he had a notorious reputation uh, in Chicago for brutality. And so the, the Fred Hampton Kelly, it's, 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 on the one hand, it's an, an incredibly simple story and it's a morality play. It's an assassination. And there's a lot of evidence that Fred Hampton died during that shootout. And it wasn't really a shootout. It was only one shot fired by the Panthers, and that went into the floor. And Mark Clark, who was a Panther, who was also killed in that raid, 
was sleeping in a chair, and when the police busted in, he had a shotgun in his lap, um, and he tried to stand up, and he never really made it all the way up. He got shot, and his shotgun went off into the floor. But Fred Hampton, uh, there's some evidence that he had been drugged and he, that he never woke up and he died in his bed uh, with a, a headshot uh, at very close range. So it's just ugly. And Fred Hampton's girlfriend, who, who's, um, who's been interviewed for several documentaries about the, the killing, she was pregnant at the time. She was wounded. Some other Panthers were wounded. And again, two Panthers got were killed, Fred Hampton and uh, Mark Clark. So on the one hand, it's a very simple uh, morality tale, and the police assassinated somebody. On the other hand, it's a little more complex, because it's not real clear what the FBI wanted. Uh, and did the FBI want to kill Fred Hampton? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Or did the FBI expect that the Chicago police would break in and then find a whole bunch of weapons, and that would make a great press conference? Look at all the uh, guns these guys had. You know, it's really it's really hard to say. But one thing is for sure, by helping arrange for Chicago police officers to go into that apartment on Monroe Street in Chicago, the FBI what the FBI did was you know beyond reckless. You know, it was the lawyers would call, you know, negligent homicide or something like that. It's just criminal, absolutely criminal. And O'Neill, he might have, uh, guilt might have got the best of him. He uh, uh, was an FBI informant. He wasn't a ghetto informant. He was much higher than that. And he actually worked himself up to the head of Fred Hampton security. And uh, after this and uh, um, Blackside made the, the their great documentary uh, show on the civil rights movement and the black nationalist movement called Eyes on the Prize. Uh, when they did a segment of this, William O'Neill, something happened, something snapped, and he uh, threw, him off, threw himself off uh, into traffic on the Dan Ryan in Chicago and died. And, you know, we don't know why. You can make an assumption that he felt guilty. Uh, but he killed himself. And so there's, you know, a lot of victims in, 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 in the Fred Hampton story. Mm. And none of the victims are Chicago police or FBI agents. But the, uh, the, the damage just uh, reverberated. And, and even the FBI informant. Yeah, he got his uh, cash reward from the Bureau for what he did. Uh, but in the end, he, he, he killed himself. It's a suicide. Victim of white supremacy, Victim O'Neill. And even even that, they do the film, and it's Judas and the Black Messiah. Like, that's, <laughs> he's remembered, and not that he's a victim, too, in all of this because he was coerced like hey you could do it or you could be an informant or you can get you know to go to prison and that's how they yeah, did a lot yeah, of these but, folks with yeah, this coercion but, yeah, but i think it's oh, just one second i think it's it's really important <laughs> william o'neill commits suicide you can process that however you want and you know whatever he's to blame he did shouldn't have done all this and blah 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 and helping them in this this murder of fred hampton i totally get it but i mean dang like they didn't give me an end shot of Roy Mitchell. Did you feel guilty about it? They didn't do that. 
They didn't give me, you know, any of the Chicago police officers and their relatives like, hey, man, we're sorry about we we feel guilty. We're bad. They didn't do that. Just and William O'Neill was not in. It's the same sort of thing that I bring up when people talk about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. The only person that they can name is Nurse Rivers. She's a black nurse. She's not in charge. Why don't we know some of the white people that way? Roy Mitchell should be the person that we know, not William O'Neill, not that he's unimportant, but Roy, put him in the document. Let's see what he, let's get him on the grill for an hour. And add, like I said, how many of these folks did you have? And how much was your support? Yeah. All the details. And the other point that I want to make, I just look at all the information. You've probably seen way more than I have. Your historian, Professor Emeritus, there is no way one can come to any other conclusion. But I'm just reading your book. What did the FBI logically think would happen in this environment? And what would they want to happen, given that Fred Hampton was about to be going back to jail? So he had kind of limited options at this point. They could have just twiddled their thumbs and, hey, he'll be back in greater confinement. And, you know, what? hey, for some instances, that is neutralized. He can't do a whole lot locked up. They just have to focus on seeing if they can get him out of jail. You wrote O'Neill's last prepared report stated that there were no illegal weapons on the premises. All the guns were legally purchased and registered. The state's attorneys nonetheless had based the probable cause evidence during the warrant application process on information supplied by an unidentified informant. O'Neill. The ostensible purpose of the raid was to seize contraband that O'Neill said did not exist because Cook County authorities based their request for a warrant on hearsay. O'Neill told Mitchell and Mitchell told the police and the police went to the judge. The warrant itself was invalid. A valid affidavit under Illinois law would have required the signature of the informant's contact the signature of the FBI's counterintelligence man, that name again, Roy Mitchell. That's the sort of thing where you all are not even following your own policy and procedure in your zeal to make sure that gloves, you took the highlight out of my hand. I love it when I guess do that. When gloves, the black officer known for brutalizing black, brutalizing black people is on hand when you already know they don't even have any guns. What is all this for? Oh, I got it. To go and shoot somebody who's drugged. I got it. That's what this, I mean, I'm just following logic. Sometimes one plus one is two. There is no other logical reason that this is for other than we're going to kill Fred Hampton and if Mark Clark, any other collateral damage that, you know, pregnant black female, whatever else, but we're going to kill Fred Hampton. Yeah, you can you can make that case for the Chicago police. It's harder to make it for the FBI. The FBI in the aftermath, the Fred Hampton shooting is a public relations disaster for the Bureau. Now, back up a little bit. We talked about uh, things getting embedded in the culture. Uh, exactly. The name William O'Neill is sort of embedded in the culture because he was the informant, the Judas, right, the, but uh, despite Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, the FBI guys who arranged this, uh, yeah, they're not, their names are not embedded in the culture. It's, uh, and we do that in the U.S. and other cultures do it too all the time. And we, we chop things off at the knees. 
uh, just to give you a, an example of what we're talking about here, every, probably everybody remembers the George W. Bush administration torture scandal, which began at Abu Ghraib. And, and, but who went to prison? Low-ranking grunts, low-ranking soldiers, uh, the CIA agents who uh, uh, supervised the torture, uh, the uh, John Yu and the Justice Department lawyers, who wrote up a ridiculous memoranda providing supposedly legal justifications for torturing people. Uh, no, those guys didn't go to prison. Uh, most of them got promoted. I mean, John Yu is a federal judge, and there are others as well involved in that whole process. He, he's not the only federal judge out there right now who is involved in this whole torture thing. But But who went to jail? The people at the very, very... And bottom, and so we look at the Fred Hampton killing, and uh, who's the big bad villain? Uh, well, you know, put in the vernacular, the black guy who betrayed his his race. It's ridiculous, and yet that's that's what it means to embed things in the culture. Context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, uh, historian emeritus, author of Nixon's Piano. We were just talking about that. And Racial Matters, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly. Uh, see if I can nab some of the folks who dialed in uh, with a question. Uh, let's see. We do not have time for speechifying, so just get to your question. Much obliged. Uh, let's see. Uh, the person who dialed in last four digits two two six two 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 six two. Did you have a question for Dr. O'Reilly? You should be with us. Uh, good afternoon. Um, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, thank you, Gus, for taking my call and greetings to Dr. O'Reilly. We appreciate you taking some time out of your day to speak to us. Uh, My question is, um, yes, you said last time that the system of racism and white supremacy will be, is waning. Do you think the system of racism and white supremacy is waning now? No, no, absolutely not. And a a good way to look at this is uh, uh, King had a quote. Dr. King had a quote that he borrowed from uh, an abolitionist from the 1830s. And he said, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Uh, that's a good image, but it's not quite right. Uh, you have progress, but progress is, is like two steps forward, one step back. And sometimes it's uh, two steps forward and four steps back. In the long run, uh, are we going in the right direction? Yeah, well, sort of, right? Uh, slavery's gone. Child labor uh, is sort of gone. Uh, women can vote, um, and so there, you know, Jim Crow is gone. So there, there is some progress, but you have these these periods where uh, we regress. And, and right now, you're you're in a, an enormous period of re- of regression. Uh, you know, P, you know, politics. Some politicians they don't speak in code anymore. I mean. Uh, you know, we're like a hop, skip, and a jump from, you know, the N-word being thrown about uh, by one of our political parties. We're not quite there yet, but we're almost there. And so right now, yeah, this is this is pretty bleak. Um, 
in terms of uh, uh, of what's going on. And uh, we just talked about the police in Fred Hampton. And uh, often the police, is, whether it's city police, county sheriffs, or FBI agents, often the, the police are like a, a vanguard uh, for regression. And it's kind of always been that way. People forget uh, down south, police power started with slave patrols. Uh, up north, police power started with protecting property. New England merchants organizing night watches uh, to protect their shops and stores. So police power has really nothing to do with, uh, you know, protect and serve and all that stuff historically. And during uh, times of regression, uh, the police are almost always in, in, in the vanguard of uh, regression. And you can really see that now. And I think what we're going to see uh, even more of it in the future is more of this proud boy, uh, alt-right, white supremacist uh, infiltration of police, uh, the military. And so it is, it, in terms of the color line, it's really um, a bleak period. Uh, but it's not just the color line today. It's the gender line, poverty line. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a rough time to be an American right now of, of any color and especially black yeah, in other words the last time thank you yes thank you my last question would be you said last time and you i quote you malcolm x is the prince of violence what did you mean by that and i'll mute my mind that's uh that's like an, it's an image it's not it's something that's necessarily meant to, to be taken literally. In the context, I, I said, if you look at the FBI's co-intelpro, the FBI's counterintelligence program, you can think of that program as a circle. And so if you put at the beginning of the circle, Malcolm X, and just for you know purposes of drama, the Prince of Violence, and then you draw that circle all the way around 360 degrees and close the circle. Who's on the other end? Martin Luther King, the prince of nonviolence. And so that is just like a literary way uh, of saying, uh, if you're black, there's a good chance the FBI is going to be interested in you and not in a friendly way. And, and that was one of the points. The points of my book is that you had surveillance of the uh, civil rights people like King and uh, John Lewis and James Foreman and Bob Moses and uh, Fannie Hamer and Diane Nash, and you had surveillance of the Rap Browns and the Stokelys. Uh, but you also had community surveillance of literally surveillance of black America. So it's not just surveillance of the NAACP or surveillance of the SCLC or SNCC, it's surveillance of black America. Treated like garbage, our loyalties are suspect. Retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly? You should be with us. Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, the first question uh, to uh, the guests is, is, is uh, kidnapping a federal crime? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. 
Okay. Uh, well, why haven't Carolyn Bryant not not been served with a no-knock warrant for her arrest for her participation in Emmett Till's kidnapping slash murder? Yeah, that yeah that is a, that's a tough one. Kidnapping is absolutely a federal crime if the victim is taken across the state line. If it's kidnapping uh, within a state, it's a little more complex, but almost every time the FBI can get involved. What you've got here is the political will uh, to do this. Um, There's some evidence uh, that in the Emmett Till uh, killing, yeah, that she made a false identification. And there's no statute of limitations on murder. And, uh, and again, and a murder like what happened to Emmett Till when he was 14 at the time, uh, that's conspiracy. And so if you, if you took an act and, and further of the conspiracy, you, know, you don't really even have to talk about kidnapping. You're talking about murder. And she can be indicted for that. Um, now is there political will to do that? And the, ju- the, the justice to people, what do they do? They say, well, we're only going to bring cases where we're sure we can get a conviction. And, and sometimes uh, people don't have the courage of their convictions and they just bail out. But I think uh, something should be done there. And it's still possible something might be done there. There have been a lot of uh, cold case uh, uh, civil rights uh, cases that have been reopened in the last 30 years. I mean, Byron De, De Lebeck, he got prosecuted. Dynamite Bob, you know, he killed Megar Evers. Uh, Dynamite Bob Chambliss. Uh, right. Who uh, right. the 16th Street Baptist Church? Yeah, he got prosecuted eventually. And so, will this lady uh, get prosecuted? We'll see. But again, it's tough. If you're a prosecutor, it's either easy decision or a tough decision. And uh, some prosecutors are going to say, "Heck yes, let's just do this." Uh, but if, if you're a U.S. attorney and you've got political considerations, um, they might not be brave enough to do it. A U.S. attorney might think this could launch me into the stratosphere and make me a political superstar or, you know, uh, or I'll be doing dog bite cases the rest of my legal career. It could ruin me. And so well, we're going to see what happens. Yeah. Last question. What what do you think is the up-to-date version of surveillance of, quote-unquote, black America? I think under Trump, uh, you know, he he pretty much tried to green green light things of, uh, you know, spying on, on black people, Antifa, black groups, whatever. Uh, and the Republican Party has uh, their... their pushing that pretty hard, too. And, and, of course, there's an irony here. If you look at, at Democrats and liberals, uh, the, they have their own surveillance agenda, only it's targeting uh, the alt-right, the people that are, you know, gunning down African-Americans in churches, uh, movie theaters, malls, all the synagogues, whatever. And so right now, it, it's kind of Ironic in that it's almost like we have a surveillance state and you have people, conservatives, screaming that we need to uh, spy on dangerous Antifa and black radicals. And then you have liberals screaming, no, we got to spy on uh, 
you know, the white supremacists and the alt-right and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all that stuff. Um, and who will have the upper hand? I, I don't know. The January 6th uh, uh, demonstrations and the ongoing prosecutions uh, seem to give, uh, you know, the left the upper hand, for, at least for the time being. But, I mean, I don't know. Nobody's got a crystal ball. Anybody who says they can predict the future, uh, they run away from them. What we can do in history is, as, as Gus keeps saying, and I agree with him, we can provide context. But, boy, predicting, I don't know. But, again, we're in a weird spot. We got to spy on, you know, the white supremacists. No, we got to spy on black people. And the country is sort of kind of down the middle on that. Seems like there's that's not healthy. That's not, that's not good. That's not healthy in a democracy. Seems like position. there's always consistency about spying on the black people. Yeah, much of yeah I agree there. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Let's see. Our caller, uh, caller victim in New Jersey. Victim in New Jersey. Did you have a question for Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly? Uh, yeah, yeah, doctor. Um, um, doctor, yeah, this, this wasn't my initial question, but, um, you said you just stated something about liberals wanting to spy on white supremacists. Um, I mean, me personally, do you think that can kind of like be, um, not fully true, being that every time uh, a suspected uh, white supremacist shooter uh, goes on a shooting spree, there's already some kind of surveillance or a track record on this particular individual. Yeah, and again, think, here's a, it's a fallback position historians take sometimes, and we simply say, well, yeah, it's complex. But sometimes things are complex. And, okay. and if you look at uh, the willingness of the United States right now, just the United States generally, all of us, black, white, brown, red, yellow, all of us, um, we, we have to make a decision about what to do about uh, the alt-right movement, the white supremacist movement, which is, you know, at pretty much peak strength right now. What are we going to do about this? And uh, are we going to have uh, surveillance of these guys or not? And there's the country's kind of struggling over that. And we didn't struggle over that when it comes to spying on black people for almost our entire history. We didn't have that struggle after 9-11 spying on uh, Muslims. But we seem to have it, have it here. Now, the FBI, again, I'm a historian. If you go back to 1964, the FBI tried to find, finesse that issue. And they, the FBI actually did launch a counterintelligence program against the Ku Klux Klan and similar groups uh, in 1964. But the FBI's goal there, what they were trying to embed in the culture, was the idea that, you know, white supremacy is okay, but the way the Ku Klux Klan is going about it is not okay. And so the Ku Klux Klan, they're giving white supremacy a bad name. And so we've got to get rid of those people so we can get back uh, to a white supremacy that we can get away with. And what's remarkable is 
more sensitivity to this back in 1964 than there is today. The amount of uh, just blatant, out-in-the-open racism that uh, we've gotten, especially in the Trump years and in the aftermath, is just incredible. Right. Okay. So, um, so doctor, um, you talked about, um, so this, this is a question. This is basically, um, a two part question. So, I mean, when you kind of like look at, look over your work and you, you kind of like look at what's going on today, whether it's Jeff, Jeff Sessions, uh, BIE, um, that can be parallel to, um, um, J. Edgar Hoover, even though Jeff Sessions was attorney general, Hoover head of the, um, FBI or Walter White, when he complained about um, anti-Negro FBI agents messing up lynching and police brutality cases similar to what prosecutors do when they get in the courtroom, and they may overcharge a uh, police officer to, you know, kind of get, you know, to get him off uh, with uh, abusing um, black people. So my question is this. So, um, on page 12, he says, FBI surveillance activity aimed at black Americans began in, uh, began in a client, in this climate of respectable racism. Do you think that that's what's going on right now? Do you think that this country, um, wants to go back into a respectable form of, uh, racism? Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that you might be right there. I mean, that's a good insight um, because there's nothing respectable about what's going on now. There's nothing respectable about um, AR-15 shootings. There's nothing respectable January 6th. Uh, and January 6th, the racial overtones in that are just overwhelming. And so it, it, this is sort of embarrassing to a good chunk of the, the country, but another chunk of the country right now sees this as refreshing. They see it as brutal honesty. And, uh, and it's like we don't give a damn what, or we don't give a darn what other people think, what other nations think about us. And you can see that surface, uh, you know, in, in really odd places. I mean, just recently, uh, Justice Alito is over in Italy uh making fun of other nations that are, are critical of the Supreme Court decision in Ro, you know, that overturned Roe v. Wade. And so it's it just, it's just, if you met Donald Trump, one of his big um, themes was that America, the, the world is laughing at us. And he said, I, I will fix that. And and he did in a way. And the world's no, you know, I don't think the world's ever laughing at us, but the world during the Trump years is basically terrified of the United States, and much of the world right now is terrified that we're going to go back to the Trump years. But to come back to the, the topic today, I mean, if you're an African American, it's like, yeah, yeah, what else is new? This is the, the reality. I'm got, that's 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 two and now a lot of white people are being pulled into that reality. And some of them don't like it. And some of them are in, overjoyed. And this is the, the, the America they want to live in, an America of white over black. And we're, yeah, and by the way, not one more question. Sure. Sure. 
sorry, so, sorry, um, Mr. O'Reilly. Sorry for cutting you off. I'm sorry. Go see. You've got one more question. Oh, so yeah, Mr. O'Reilly. Yeah, yeah, so Mr. O'Reilly. So, um, again, like making the parallels, because I noticed that um, in your book, uh, J. Edgar Hoover will also often uh, defer his responsibilities to the states. He promoted states' rights. And you also see that same uh, rhetoric uh, being infused into um, the politics of today, um, states' rights. Um, you you doing this work and you you seeing the parallels. What are you doing to alert um, Black Americans, or some would say, if they are any any well-to-do white people, about the parallels and the danger of this rhetoric that's being allowed in uh, politics and also in media? Yeah, well, that's. Uh... What I've done, past tense, has written three books about this. Racial Matters, Nixon's Piano, and then Black Americans, the FBI Funnels. And then uh, right now I'm doing uh, work, more political, environmental history. Um, But I still pull in what the FBI is doing and in terms of uh, the environment. Often, uh, people, uh, you know, lower socioeconomic categories, meaning people who ain't got much money, are hit hardest by environmental calamities. And so, and unfortunately, African Americans are overrepresented among the people who ain't got no money or very little. So I'm still tangentially involved, but not as directly involved as it was in writing these three books on it. Um, And I guess I wish I had more time to to get more directly involved. But I'll tell you, as an historian, sometimes you write a book and sometimes it gets, you know, 100 reviews or 300 reviews or 500 reviews and it sells real well. And sometimes you write a book and it's like dropping it into a well and it never hits the water because nobody, you know, not a whole lot of people read it. And so it's, 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 it's tough to make, it's tough to make an impact, but the only real sin I think is to give up. You just got to keep, you just got to keep like Fitzgerald said in the great Gatsby, you just got to keep beating against the current Uh, that's so interesting we talked about that book so frequently for interesting reasons normally associated with Lothrop Stoddard anywho much obliged our caller in New Jersey Uh, the caller last four digits 2979 2979 did you have a question for Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly Caller at two. Uh, hello, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Great. Uh, so I have I have four questions, um, and really I designed them to be yes or no questions. So if uh, Mr. O'Reilly, if you could uh, answer them in a yes or no fashion, I would greatly appreciate it. Sure. Uh, first, for clarification. Go ahead. 
uh, for clarification, the FBI was created and is operating controlled by people classified as white. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, in your opinion, does the FBI's work contribute to preventing non-white people from eliminating the system of white supremacy? You say that one again. In your say opinion, that. does the FBI? In your opinion, does the FBI's work contribute to preventing non-white people from eliminating the system of white supremacy? Yeah, these are hard to go. I would say that's like a 60% yes, 40% no. So we just put it down for yes. Kind of like a civil lawsuit, right? Criminal lawsuit, guilty, innocent, hung jury. But civil law, you can say 60%, 40%. So put it down for yes. Okay, I'll, I'll take that one as a yes. Uh, do white people yeah, and we're, focus we're, on the hang activities on a minute. of... Hang on a minute. We're, we're talking about the period covered by my book, right? from the FBI's founding to 1972, the Hoover year. I'm not... I'm talking about your opinion as a a white person. Correct. But you're asking me specific questions about the FBI. Now, are you asking me questions about the FBI during the era I wrote about the FBI, which stops in 1972? Or you ask me questions about the FBI all the way up to the present? I'm I'm asking about, you are a historian who has done work on the FBI, and I'm asking about your opinion about the FBI. Yeah, but today's FBI or Hoover's FBI? Is it okay if I move on to my next question? Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Do white people focus on the activities of non-white people to prevent them from working to counter the system of white supremacy? These are not yes or no questions. I mean, you want a yes or no answer, but these are not yes or no questions. I got a good answer for you. It's Jesse Jackson's answer, but it, it, it would take several paragraphs. But for sake of argument, sure, put me down for yes. Thank you. Uh, with the research and evidence you have compiled, are you organizing or going to white people to attempt to disband the FBI? No. And then my my final question is, are you a racist white supremacist? I sure hope not. But a simple answer there is no. Uh, that, those are all my questions. Uh, thank you very much for answering them, and I will go ahead and mute my line. Much okay, obliged. Thanks for, thanks for your questions. Much obliged, sir. <clears throat> Context of white supremacy, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly. Even got another Jesse Jackson mention in second time today. Uh, you in the book while I look out for our other Jesse, Jesse, Jesse Jackson was a great man. Oh, I don't have anything bad to say about Jesse Jackson. Like, he's, ever. He's, he's way, historically, he's way, way, way underrated. I, I'm, I, 
never, ever have anything bad to say about uh, Jesse Jackson and try to discourage other people from talking bad about uh, Mr. Jackson, also a victim of white supremacy and a victim of coin. Man, talk about an interesting cointel profile. Woo! Must read. Uh, you in the book, uh, this is on 322, or it comes up a few times, but I'm just looking at 322. Dr. O'Reilly, and it's not in quotes, so these are your words. Uh, what is a black radical? Meaning, what does a black radical do that nobody else does? Black radical. Yeah, that's a, a way to characterize things. Uh, for example, uh, but, but it can be misleading. I mean, Martin Luther King didn't, he, he started out as a radical in his time, but he ended up as a radical in any time. Because when Martin, by the time Martin Luther King is assassinated, he's talking about the radical redistribution of wealth and power in the United States. But conventionally, uh, the way uh, the culture—and again, things get embedded in the culture—the way uh, things uh, fall out culturally is you have this division between civil rights activists, and so uh, civil rights activists like Martin Luther King are pigeonholed as civil rights activists and black radicals like Huey and Bobby and, and Stokely and Rap Brown and, uh, and so forth are pigeonholed as radicals. And then, uh, you know, Malcolm X is harder to characterize. Uh, and whatever Malcolm X was, he, he was not a civil rights activist. Uh, but he was certainly radical but not radical in the way that, uh, you know, Sophie Carmichael and uh, Rap Brown were. Hang on a second, Dr. O'Reilly. This is an important one because definitions are very important. And, I mean, this is basics. Like with definition, you aren't supposed to use the term when you are explaining, giving a definition for what a particular term means. So I asked and you didn't have this is not in quotes so you're not taking this out of the FBI files or anybody else's words you use the term black radical and use it a few times in the sure. text so what He's does more a than, black more than, radical more than you, what does well, a black I mean, radical hang on a second let me finish my question cuz you didn't answer it the last time so i would i would like to get this oh, in well, if you can i did i'll show you that what does a black radical do you did not what does a black radical do that okay. no one I'll, I'll else show- does I'll show you that I did answer the question. Martin Luther King started out as a civil rights activist, but by the time he's done, he's a radical who happens to be black. And so for literary purposes, what do you shorten that to black radical? Now, why would I say King is a radical? Because like real radicals, they want fundamental change. And Martin Luther King wants it to fundamentally change the distribution of wealth and power in the United States. Uh, and so he's just as much a radical as Stokely with the, 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 you know, the black power and the fist in the air. Or Tommy Smith and uh, Carlos and Harry Edwards in the 68 Olympics and Lee Evans. If you want fundamental change, you're a radical. Okay. Now you can be a rat. You can be a radical on the other side too. And you you want to go back to you know Jamestown in sixteen nineteen, and there are people and white people in America who are who are that type of radical, and that's fundamental change as well. 
Okay. That's not what you said the first time. I just want to point that out for listeners that's well, so important well, yeah. with words uh, in terms yeah, of the, but, what with the first time I fundamental said King change. Wanted, yeah, King, the first time I said King, when he died, he died in Memphis. He died marching with garbage men. I didn't say that the first time. But I did say when he died, he was calling for a fundamental distribution of wealth and power in this U.S. I did okay. say that. I, I didn't that. say this either. Gotcha. I didn't say this either. At, at the time King is assassinated, he's calling the United States, uh, you know, God's, uh, you know, it's like we're acting like we're God's military mission on planet Earth. And we need to get the hell out of Vietnam. And we need to look at America. And we need to fix America. And see, that's that's radical. And someone who's not radical, like liberals, what do liberals want to do? They want to tinker with the system. Here's another way to give you an image to to explain this. Um, you have an automobile, your personal car, and the water pump breaks. Right? So your car, you can't drive your car without a water pump. So what do you do? Do you go out and buy a bus? Do you go out and buy a tank? Because, you, you know, your car doesn't drive, but a bus drives, a tank drives. A radical would do something radical. And so if you say the car, the automobile symbolizes capitalism and the bus symbolizes socialism and the tank symbolizes fascism, a radical with Martin Luther King or any other radical, black or white, would say capitalism isn't working. We need a new system. But what would a liberal say? A liberal would say, well, keep the car and get a new water pump. Dr. O'Reilly, I need to pause. I need to pause for a second. Woo. We did bring up rhetoric before for listeners. Anybody who has heard Gus and me talk about metaphors before. Wow. That is a brilliant illustration. All I can say is this because I've talked to so many people who use this word. Man, all I can say is I am no clearer now than I was when I started with regards to a so-called radical that is a part of it. It's and it's exactly in the book. It's deliberately vague so it can be applied to almost any black person who is responding to racism, white supremacy. That's the major trend that I've seen really with everybody who uses that because they even say that Gus is radical. It's like, well, dang, I'm not out here shooting or anything. I have a radio program. We talk to authors and you're radical. It's like, okay. Especially when I hear all of that. Anywho, that's so you call that's not, that's not a bad thing to be radical. Well, but, most but of the, the time in the culture, Doctor O'Reilly, it's used in a pejorative sense. And in your book, the people who are radicals are the victims of the worst of the Quintel pro exploits. So it is not a good position to be a black radical. Good things do not happen to you. Yeah, I'm sort of losing the train of thought here. But Oh, I was too when, when just getting the definition of radical. That was why I stopped you. I was too just trying to get an explanation for radical. But again, that's consistent when it's applied to black people. Words are important. Definitions are important as well. Uh, you talked about Geronimo Pratt uh, in your text. I want to make sure I go down and, re and <laughs> have to make sure I go back for a listener. So this book. Racial Matters, the FBI file from 1960 to 1972, was published in 1989. Geronimo Pratt was still in greater confinement at the time that this book uh, was published. After the fact, he got out, 
multi-million dollar settlement the great Johnny L. Cochran Jr., uh, one of yeah. his attorneys uh, who worked on the case and as I mentioned we read uh, Jack Olson's book Last Man Standing which also uh, did not exist at the time that your book uh, was right. published yeah. so there's been and, lots of and not updated just, information not just Geronimo Pratt, Deruba Moore too Yes, sir. You talk about them both almost in the same section of the text. I'm skipping down. This is uh, on page 324 uh, in Racial Matters. Uh, you write, do, 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 Geron- you mentioned them together, as I just said. Geronimo Pratt mm-hmm. and DeRuber Moore remain incarcerated no more, and perhaps they deserve to be a reasonable person might also conclude that their words and deeds deserved whatever FBI response they provoked. Provoked The record of FBI conduct nonetheless is there for Amnesty International to write reports about and for everyone to see. With hindsight, I guess this is 2020, but uh, have you seen anything that Geronimo Pratt deserved to be in good rate of confinement for those 27 years? Anything? Well, he, he was accused of murder. And what we know now is that's BS. Did we know it for an absolute fact at the time? No, it took him a long time to get out of jail. Um, but, yeah, and DeRuba Moore, too, in the Panther 21 case in New York. It's just, uh, see, that's the real problem with the FBI and what the FBI did during the Hoover era. They, they essentially pollute the criminal justice system. And so what we can document what the FBI did brings into question, you know, criminal prosecutions against black people, period. End of story. It, it taints, it pollutes everything. As, if they're, especially if they're high profile, if they're civil rights activists. Now, Daruba Moore, Geronimo Pratt, they're not that high profile. They're well known in, in, in small circles, generally, in their areas. Uh, but to the FBI, they're, they're pretty high profile. But at the same time, we talked about this with Fred Hampton as well. If the FBI is going to go run around framing people and or and or assassinating them, you know, Fred Hampton, Geronimo Prout, Deruba Moore, right, they wouldn't necessarily be anywhere near the top of the top of the list. There were um, a, a lot. In other words, the FBI had a lot of files on a lot of black people that were a lot thicker than their files on uh, Fred Hampton, Deruba Moore. I don't know. I have not seen Geronimo Pratt's file, but I'm sure it is not on the thin side uh, for someone who caused them problems for so long. Even Johnny L. Cochran, I haven't seen his file either. Uh, you... Well, the, the, the problem with it, well, with the Geronimo Pratt file, the Drew Moore file, you have to split them down the middle. The FBI file before the arrest and the FBI file after, because after you're in the area of uh, criminal investigations, now they, which might be bogus, and in Geronimo Pratt's case and Moore's case, they've proven to be bogus. But before the arrests, uh, they're not criminal investigations at all. They're political investigations. Racism, white supremacy. Uh, and in fact, I don't think you were, it's not yet, I don't think you did not, importantly with Geronimo Pratt and I even think I do think it's important for context because this information was available at the time that your book was published and I think it leads to exactly what we talked about the first time you were with us with Marcus Garvey and you talked about this with black people in general everybody they become suspects their loyalties are suspects with Marcus Garvey and Geronimo Pratt it was 
we don't like this guy. This guy is out disrupting white supremacy racism. We're going to do something. We're going to find something to charge this guy. Not, hey, we have evidence that this guy might be doing something wrong. Let's go and investigate. It's the other way around. This guy's already guilty. We don't like him. We're going to find a way to put something on him. That's what Geronimo Pratt. They started with the Charles Manson case because it's not in the book with Charles Manson. They started with that case saying he did it. With whoa, wait a minute, Geronimo Pratt did the Charles Manson crime where they got uh, all this goofiness written on the wall and everything. They started that with him. Like, wait a minute, you all have been looking to just hang some murder charge on Geronimo Pratt this whole time. You saw that, right? Them trying to blame Geronimo Pratt for the Charles Manson case. I'm not real up on that. What I do know is uh, when we talked about what you're talking about there is you you have a target. And then you search for a crime that you can hook that target to. And in the worst examples of that, and that's pollution of the criminal justice system. That is something that should not happen in a democracy. In the worst cases, you frame a target. And essentially, that's what happened with Pratt and Moore, in that the, uh, there's enough evidence against civil juries that these guys are, have been, you know, have essentially been framed. That's not to say that the, the Black Panthers were a bunch of peaceful goody two shoes. There, there's a lot of um, energy in the Panthers, and much of it went into productive uh, avenues, but some of it went into you know nihilistic avenues. I don't know what uh, goody two shoes are. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that I got in. Geronimo Pratt uh, testified uh, interview he gave to Democracy Now after he was released from prison sure, in the 1990s sure, that he was uh, charged with the Tate LaBianca murders. Uh, he was picked up sure. before Charles Manson, uh, and that's also in Jack Olson's book. Uh, last man standing. I just wanted to make sure that I got it, which, like I said, just goes to the point that you were just talking about where you saying that this is uh, tainting, corrupting the so-called criminal justice system. This is white supremacy racism where we're just looking for any reason to put any crime, even where we know they had evidence, they had wire log information that Geronimo Pratt. Oh, and that's even an error that you have in your book. You have that he was in Carolina. He was in North Carolina, uh, North California, Oakland specifically, uh, where they had wiretap information that he knew they knew he could not have done these murders. And they lied about it for all of these years. And then to have people question and this is a world war ii veteran you include or excuse me a vietnam veteran who uh, served two tours have people thinking that well maybe he did something or whatever whatever as opposed to wait a minute no he didn't do anything they lied and have been looking to arrest him for anything make up something lie about it whatever and have him in prison for 27 years yeah yeah it's a horrible story and he's compensated with the only way a capitalist system knows how to comp- compensate someone with money. A philosophical question is, you know, why why did the FBI go after Geronimo Pratt with this type of pants-leg ferocity? And, and there's, you know, 50 other Black Panthers who they didn't. They, the FBI went after the Panthers as an organization, but they didn't go after that many individual Black Panthers. So why do they pick Fred Hampton? Why do they pick Geronimo Pratt? That is a question that that 
why did they pick Jerubamore? Uh, now, it's easier to say why they picked uh, Huey and Bobby, but these other guys, it's, it's just, it's, it's a tougher question. Someone needs to write a book about that and, and why some of these uh, more obscure uh, Black Panthers were, were targeted so, uh, you know, viciously. Because in, in the 60s, if you look at the Black Panther Party, the Panthers that truly had high profile, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, uh, and then eventually Eldridge Cleaver, and then Kathleen Cleaver. Now, are other Panthers, you know, fairly well famous? Yeah, but not, they're not household names. Those four Panthers, they're, they're household names in, in the 60s. So, so why would the Bureau go after uh, Hampton and Pratt and Moore? We know that they did, but I couldn't adequately uh, answer that question in my book. And so far, I don't think anybody's ad- adequately answered that question. To me, that that's a, that's a key one. Hmm. On uh, 296, talking about some of the other folks who were targeted, uh, you write, talk, uh, Black Panthers as well, you write, when Bobby Seale first heard about Malcolm X's assassination, his mind filled with thoughts of Bull Connor and white ass cops oh there's was one time along with the motherfucking white racist president and the fbi the fbi killed him seal charged so let's talk about shooting the goddamn fbi in quote <clears throat> that malcolm died at the hands of black men was beside the point Wowzers, this is another one. There's been so much information since the time that this book uh, was published. Even there's an entire book now uh, on Malcolm X uh, came out in two. Excuse me, came out in 1995. uh, Excuse me, got the date wrong. 1991 Malcolm X, the FBI file. That book is bigger than uh, this book with all of the information. Again, not that I'd be surprised about that sort of thing. I mean, my goodness, if you want to talk about high profile during the 1960s. There you go, Minister Malcolm X, uh, with all, and I'm, that's just the stuff that they released that we have. Did you see the uh, Netflix series? I think it's like five or six parts. Who killed Malcolm X? Uh, they say, or at least they credit it in part with being a part of the effort that helped uh, exonerate, uh, even though one of the black males had died. Unfortunately, talk about victims uh, that helped exonerate exonerate Muhammad A. Aziz and Khalil Islam, uh, who served. <laughs> other black males who served all these unjust years uh, who had been convicted for the uh, assassination of Malcolm X. They credit the film uh, who killed Malcolm X with helping to get their exoneration. Did you see any of that documentary? Yes. But uh, my question to you was then who did kill Malcolm X? Oh, I don't know, but I go back to your book about Bobby Seale and him thinking the FBI did or was involved in this in some way, the federal government, man, when I look at this, Oh my but goodness! That's, but that's not evidence. That's rage. He's uh, angry. Sir, I'm not. I'm not even looking at the rage component with. In fact, even with Bobby Seale, I'm looking at this now with hindsight. He is angry, but man, so you have someone. They say they don't want a black messiah like a Malcolm X. Uh, in fact, let me pause for a second. That documentary that I just mentioned. You even mentioned David Guerra. You've been lockstep with me the whole way leading right up where I want to go so this is David Garrow 
right in the documentary. I think this is number three out of six. I might be wrong about the number. It might be five. I think it is six, though. Six pieces. This should be three out of six. David Garrow, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, talking about, hmm, FBI involvement in Malcolm X's Bobby Seale. Now, is this rage or is this logic? Let's listen. In the 1960s, the FBI launched one of the biggest counterintelligence operations in its entire history. Black people everywhere today are fed up with the hypocrisy practiced by whites. And they kept a very close watch on Brother Malcolm. And if something isn't done, then I'm afraid that you will have a racial explosion, and a racial explosion is more deadly than an atomic explosion. J. Edgar the director of the FBI, was deathly afraid of someone like Malcolm X. Malcolm was being surveilled, he was being followed, his phone was tapped. If you look at the investigation of Malcolm X, it's when he becomes a public figure for the Nation of Islam that the Bureau starts taking more of an interest into his subversive rhetoric. You seem to be dissatisfied with everything. Just what do you want? I'm not dissatisfied with everything. I'm just telling you that the Negroes themselves should take whatever steps necessary to defend themselves. The FBI had multiple high-ranking, paid human informants in the leadership of the Nation of Islam. Could it have been that FBI informants were actively involved in Malcolm's murder? Almost certainly so. David Garrow, who Dr. O'Reilly mentioned already, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. So is he just talking rage? He's a controversial uh, historian uh, because of the uh, the Martin Luther King uh, uh, allegation recently. But no, but he, but it's apples and oranges. The FBI has informants in every black group in the 60s, and many informants. Let me give you an example, even before the 60s. Within the Communist Party, the FBI recruited almost exclusively black informants. And the FBI was straightforward about why they did that. And the FBI did that because if a white member of the Communist Party accused a black member of the Communist Party of being an FBI informant, then they themselves would be accused of racism. And so the FBI reasoned, well, if we just have black informants in the Communist Party, then they'll be safe. And so the whole idea, and we and we talked about this like an hour ago, right, on your program. The FBI had a black pro-informant program, a ghetto informant program, and then in the civil rights and black uh, activist groups like the Panthers, they had higher level informants like William O'Neill. Did the FBI have informants uh, in the Nation of Ism? Of course they did. We don't need Dave Garrow to tell us that. We know that. Carl Evans' book, he, he wrote extensively about that. Now, the hop, skip, and jump does that mean the FBI killed Malcolm X? Well, is it possible? Sure, anything's possible. But again, context is is, is what is key here. And uh, Elijah Muhammad, the head of the Nation of Islam, had a, a, a real grievance with, with Malcolm X. And that went public. And uh, we mentioned Muhammad Ali earlier. And Muhammad Ali, when the grievance uh, Elijah Muhammad had with Malcolm X went public, Muhammad Ali had to make a choice. Is he going to go off with Malcolm? Is he going to stick with Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam? And he stuck with the Nation of Islam. 
So, I mean, is is that the proper context for the assassination of Malcolm X, or is it the is it FBI surveillance of the Nation of Islam? And by the way, the uh, rivalries with within uh, the uh, what colloquially is called the the, the the Black Muslim movements, where you have Nation of Islam and Anafi Muslims. Like uh, Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Dabar, he's Muslim, but he's Nazi, and uh, he had murders in his house in Washington D.C. And they're sectarian murders uh, to rival sects of uh, Islam, uh, African Americans uh, practicing Islam, and uh, you had families, uh, Nazi families, living in Kareem's house in Washington. They got they they're murdered, and they're murdered by. Uh, a religious sect. And so, you know, there's context there. And so what's the proper context? FBI surveillance or uh, this conflict between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad? What's the proper context? Context, indeed. One important piece of context that I would like to add that I think even John Patash, John Patash, excuse me, and we weren't even talking about this murder specifically, the assassination of Malcolm X, but he was just pointing out, man, for context, it is certainly peculiar the large number of black people who are under FBI surveillance at the time that they get killed publicly. That is so bizarre. Like Minister Malcolm X and Minister Martin or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and even more currently notorious B.I.G. Christopher Wallace. Tupac Shakur, his connections to the Black Panther Party. You can go check their uh, FBI files as well since they're deceased. But And the list just goes on like, wow, all of these folks who are under surveillance and they get murdered publicly, even sometimes the folks who get accused of the murder in OI, in Malcolm X's case, are also yeah. under surveillance. Like, dang, you should have something. We should at least have great intel on this like you watch the whole thing. Nope. And in yeah. fact, with Malcolm X, we end up getting a botched execution that takes, what, 60 years to correct? And they said specifically, specifically in the New York Times report, two of the men found guilty of the assassination of Malcolm X are expected to have their convictions thrown out on Thursday. The Manhattan District Attorney and lawyers for the two men said rewriting the official history of one of the most notorious murders of the civil rights era. I'm skipping a couple paragraphs. A 22-month investigation conducted jointly by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and lawyers for the two men found that prosecutors and two of the nation's premier law enforcement agencies, the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the New York Police Department had, had withheld key evidence that had it been turned over would likely have led to the men's acquittal that sort of thing where it's not just oh we had informants but you also participated in getting the wrong people convicted oh man we just call that context too but is that rage me thinking that way or is that me following logic that's well, we we talk about rage. We're talking about Bobby Seale. Yes, what sir. He said, 
what you what you're talking about is well several levels one level it's did those guys get a fair trial? And the answer I is, definitely didn't say fair. No, <laughs> I definitely didn't yeah. say fair, Doctor O'Reilly. Right. But yes, sir. Well, that, but, the, but that's why they 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 got off because they didn't get a fair trial. And that's our legal system. The legal system doesn't let you out just because there's evidence that you're innocent. But the legal system will get what what get get you out if there's evidence you didn't get a fair trial. And so that that's one issue. And the other issue is uh, in their haste to make arrests, what did the FBI do? Did they make a sweep? And in this history, we, we've had uh, lots of examples of police making a sweep. Uh, the most famous example in American history is not the Malcolm X assassination, it's the, the uh, Haymarket bombings in 1887 where you had anarchists engaging in a gun battle with Chicago police during uh, international harvester uh, strikes in Chicago at the Haymarket Square. And there's even a bomb thrown and like six police died or killed. And so what did the police do? They didn't know who was shooting. They didn't know who threw the bomb. So they just, they arrested a bunch of anarchists and the courts start, tried, started trying them and started hanging them until uh, the governor of Illinois, John Peter Alkeld, uh, said enough, and he, and he stopped it. And so those anarchists weren't the ones who did the shooting, who killed the six cops, but they were anarchists, so they got swept up. And so is that is that is that the context for uh, uh, the Malcolm X killing, that uh, Muslims from the Newark Mosque got swept up and the police didn't bother trying to find the ones who actually did the shooting and just swept up any Muslims from the Newark mosque that they could. I mean, as a historian, those are the questions you, you, you got to ask. Okay. Hmm. As a historian and a counter or attempted counter racist scientist, man, even as a historian, that word they mentioned in the New York Times report, withheld. Sure, that that speaks to did they get a fair trial? I'm not. Again, I didn't say the word fair at all. They didn't get a just trial. They didn't get a correct trial. But more importantly, withheld. That to me doesn't suggest. Oh man, we're just in a hurry. We're going out and trying to do the correct thing. Yeah, that well, suggests. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and particularly because that's a pattern. That's Geronimo Pratt as well. We see this sure, over and over sure. where they have yeah, deliberate yeah, evidence. And the, and the yeah, fact, the, even the, that I have to say that I have to look at you kind of strange, Dr. Riley, because you know that. You wrote that in your book over and over where FBI, they had evidence. And they deliberate. Same thing I mentioned. Move what the cows do. Minimize, obfuscate, and omit. That's standard operating procedure. And it just so happens it pops up in this case, too. Right, but the the question is how how do you get how do you get Geronimo Pratt out of jail? How do you get Jerubal Moore out of jail? How do you get those two uh, Muslims from the uh, NOI's uh, Newark Mosque? How do you get them out of jail? And you get them out of jail uh, by demonstrating, and again, this is technical, but by demonstrating the government withheld breaking material, they withheld evidence. Now, to go from that. To your point, yeah, I agree with you. This, this happens far too often in the criminal justice system. And statistically, it's much more likely to happen to uh, 
African-American defendants, uh, immigrant defendants, Mexican-American defendants, and and believe it or not, most likely to happen to Native American defendants. So, yeah, I agree with you absolutely on that. But, again, the the technical reason is, yeah, if they didn't get a fair trial, they're going to get off. They're going to get released. And the hardcore people will say, that doesn't prove your innocence. It just proves you didn't get a fair trial. Okay. And again, you see this you see this all the time in political trials. I mentioned the Haymarket trial. You can say the same thing about the Alger Hiss trial, the big communist spy case of the of the Cold War. He didn't get a fair trial either, but by the time they found out about it, by the time he could prove it, it was too late. He already served his sentence. And the government did the same thing to Alger Hiss that they did to Daruga Moore, Geronimo Pratt, and the uh, Newark Mosque um, Nation of Islam members. It withheld evidence. Mm. And, again, that's, that is why most likely to happen in political trials. It's most likely to happen when you have high profile, uh, or really, it's most likely to happen when you have black defendants on any level, whether they be real famous or be obscure. But if you but if you can catch the prosecution doing that, our our justice system has not deteriorated to the point where um, it, it, it can't be fixed. But you have to catch them, and you have to have really good evidence to overturn convictions. And that's why Derubalmore, Geronimo Pratt, and these two guys uh, accused of killing Malcolm. That's why they got out. <laughs> it's really good evidence. They didn't get a fair trial. Everybody didn't get out in the uh, Minister Malcolm That's case. Correct. One of them did uh, yeah, pass away. Right. To, well, somebody the, shot him. We do know that. Oh, for sure. For uh, Yeah, that, no argument there. I did want to ask about William Sullivan really quick, just because you wrote in the text, this is on 285, a month after the counterintelligence program expanded in March 1968, Division Five sent the Cointel profile to a special room at FBI headquarters. William Sullivan controlled access even within the bureau to the sensitive and highly confidential paperwork generated by the Black Hate Program. From there, Division Five ordered the field to consider the entire racial field for potential counterintelligence action and to use every possible technique in the pursuit of the program's immediate and long-range goals. At least one field office positioned itself by breaking into a SNCC office and filming all the SNCC records. Another field office kept itself up to date by monitoring the credit card purchases of prospective targets. No stone left unturned. I was uh, I paused with William Sullivan because I think he's such an important uh, figure. This is uh, in the documentary All Power uh, to the People. Uh, just a 30 second snippet on William Sullivan. And then I want to get uh, Dr. O'Reilly's thoughts. This is William Sullivan uh, just giving a quick tidbit on his or I guess I don't know. Strange passing, we'll call it. William C. Sullivan, who retired as the FBI's chief investigator six years ago after falling out with J. Edgar Hoover, was killed in a deer hunting accident in New Hampshire today. Sullivan was 65. Bill Sullivan, who was the number three man in the bureau in charge of Division Five Domestic Intelligence, expressed extreme remorse to me about his role in a suggesting an anonymous letter to um, 
Martin Luther King, for Dr. King to commit suicide a week before he was going to be called upon to testify before the House uh, Committee on Assassinations. Uh, he was out in a pasture near his uh, New Hampshire home, and he was mistaken, supposedly, uh, for a deer by a young man out hunting and uh, was killed. I understand from uh, the news media that the son was an experienced hunter, and I don't know how an experienced hunter could mistake a man who's dressed in a red plaid jacket for uh, the head of a, a deer. I mean, I have never seen a red deer, but you know maybe they're out there somewhere. For listeners from the documentary, you can't see the video. That was William Turner, special or retired special agent with the FBI, who spoke uh, first uh, about Mr. Sullivan having these regrets for some of his activities in these Pro campaigns against Dr. King and other black people. Uh, and then the second person, that was former Cal's guest, Wes Swearingen, also former FBI agent, who's saying, man, this is odd for him to die in this hunting accident did you make anything or did you think that's that's just what they told us hunting accident tragedy but nothing odd to see well do i believe uh, william sullivan was assassinated no i don't believe that Uh, the passage you read uh, is is kind of ironic because sullivan there is talking about burglaries of civil rights uh uh group offices like the SNCC office and the FBI did commit burglaries. They're called black bag jobs. And the FBI had uh, separate filing systems for um, those types of sensitive uh, investigative techniques. That's what the bureau called them. Uh, but the irony is uh, the FBI's COINTELPRO program, which is what we were talking about pretty much the whole evening, uh, it got exposed in the formal program. The formal program got shut down because a group of anti-Vietnam War activists broke into an FBI uh, resident agency in Media, Pennsylvania, and liberated counterintelligence program files. And they tried to peddle them to the media, uh, but very few newspapers uh agreed to publish them, but eventually one did, and and suddenly the FBI's counterintelligence program is out in the open. There are documents showing what, you know, some of the stuff the FBI did, and so the the Bureau shut it down. Now, the Bureau still did uh, uh, questionable things after that, but the formal counterintelligence programs, they terminated precisely because the FBI itself uh, got burglarized. And, and that happened on the night of the uh, first uh, Muhammad Ali uh, uh, Joe Fraser fight, um, which is the only one Fraser won. And of course, afterwards they both went to the hospital. Mm. Brutal fight. Brain damage. Uh, we talked about that with uh, Doctor yeah. uh, Gerald Horn. His book, The Bittersweet Science, and all the racism yeah. and all of that. Stuff. Yeah, I'm 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 running out of time. Oh I yes, sir. Before we uh, let you go here, uh, Doctor O'Reilly, you're mentioned in the book Prejudicial. Uh, that's the new book that came out. Also, I guess a few days ago, Margaret Margaret. Kimberly, uh, she writes about how all of the presidents practice racism. Uh, your act that your book Nixon's piano is actually mentioned in that book many, many times. 
Uh, you mentioned her on the program already, Sally Hemings. Did you think, mm-hmm. or do you think it's an oversight? She wrote that whole, or she wrote a whole chapter on Thomas Jefferson, but she doesn't make any mention of Sally Hemings. Yeah, but as someone who writes books, I know that every author sometimes makes a uh, a goof, an omission, or something that's inexplicable. And some authors, you know, try to defend their inexplicable goof. And other authors just say, oh, my God, how could I be so dumb? But, yeah, if you're going to write about Thomas Jefferson, you, you know, Sally Hemings has to come up. I mean, and, see, there's hard evidence there, the DNA evidence. And the DNA evidence comes from the descendants of uh, Field, Field Jefferson, because uh, Thomas Jefferson had no male heirs. Uh, but that was Jefferson. I guess it, Field Jefferson was his uncle, if I remember correctly. And and by the way, at that time they did uh, DNA evidence uh, regarding Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, but they also did at the, almost exactly the same time DNA evidence regarding Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, and DNA evidence regarding uh, Zachary Taylor, because uh, a classicist, a scholar who studies ancient Greece and Rome a time when uh, poison was an assassination weapon. He came up with the the nutty idea that the slave power had poisoned Taylor, who, of course, died in office. So they dug him up, too, and uh, did uh, testing for arsenic in in his hair, because, you know, your hair doesn't decompose all that quickly. So you had these three DNA cases all, all at once involving presidents, and uh, two of them came up positive, right? Thomas Jefferson had children with Sally Hemings. Bill Clinton had uh, not the type of sex you can get pregnant from. But <laughs> he, he had sex with uh, with Monica, and uh, and the one that didn't come up positive was Zachary Taylor. This white power didn't poison him. Hmm. Well. We will, uh, I guess, begin where we started with sexual perversions and yeah, scholarly that's, omissions. That's pretty much well, that's, all. That's who, yeah, Hoover's FBI. They're interested in that. And there are certain elements in conservative America that just can't get away from that. Because you can see with Hoover's FBI, you can see with Ken Starr in the pursuit of Bill Clinton for having an affair. And you can see it now with, uh, you know, you know, they're cut. They, they, they're not going to stop with abortion. They're coming after birth control. And so it's just, you know, weird. Mm. Have to keep an eye on the birth control. We'll see if you are proficient on that one. Uh, again, the book we have discussed second time around, hopefully no duplication, racial matters, the FBI secret file on black America, 1960 yeah. to 1972. Uh, much yeah. obliged. He indulged us, gave us some extra time uh, during the middle of his summer evening. Thanks for allowing us to get all our questions yeah. in and give yeah. some pushback. It was really a yeah. hoot. And, and, and thank you. You did good. You kept me on my toes. <laughs> you, made, you made me think a lot harder than I'm accustomed to. I hope that is a good thing. I encourage uh It thinking. is. It's a very good thing. All Man. Right. Thank you again, Dr. O'Reilly. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep up the uh, keep up the scholarship, sir. All right. All right. Bye bye. Take care, sir. Context of white supremacy. Context got mentioned a lot today. 
why the program is named Context of White Supremacy. Have my second acronym, MOO. I have to write that up, right? Uh, minimize, obfuscate, omission, or omit. I think I'll go with omit. We'll go omit. So it'll be minimize, obfuscate. Yeah, minimize, obfuscate, omit. MOO. Standard operating procedure in the system of white supremacy. Uh, so that'll be one, right? They say savings and learning or how you gauge, right? That is one. So you can evaluate Gus T 2009 interview with Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly on the book, racial matters, 2022 interview with Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly on racial matters. And even, Oh my God, the amount of scholarship that has been produced both since his book was published and even since he was on the program, I even said, man, I don't know how much, you know, I'm not going to get excited and jump up and down uh, because they exonerated uh, Mr. Muhammad A. Aziz and Khalil Islam. As I said, one of them even passed away. I'm not going to jump up and down about that all these years later. The other one's out of jail. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, he's getting out of greater confinement early. But I did say. I do see enormous value in it being on the official white record. No, the two people convicted wrong, vacated conviction. We, the federal government in conjunction with the police, New York police department, which is talked about in his book over and over again, FBI coordinating with local police departments, LAPD all across the country, Mississippi, all across the country, Georgia, coordinated to withheld withhold information that would have exonerated two black males who did not participate in killing uh, Minister Malcolm X. And to see that sort of pattern consistently where the FBI in conjunction with local law enforcement deliberately withholding information that would have exonerated a black person who they know didn't commit this crime. enormous value and even re I can't even stress that enough re we should all because I haven't read it either Malcolm X the FBI files that book is longer than this book racial matters uh, the FBI secret file it's substantially longer in fact and most of it is just page after page after page FBI agents stalking that's what I'm going to call it, stalking Minister Malcolm all over the world. And since he was going globally, that's in conjunction with the CIA, which he talks about in the book as well. Anyway, I have pause. We'll take a quick break and then give folks thoughts. Man, oh man, that exchange on black radicals. Oh, my God words that right there like oh my god white guests only forever 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 I would much rather have Dr. O'Reilly or any other white person on and get into it with them what do you mean black radical as opposed to grousing and going back and forth with another victim of racism about anything anything but that oh my god Is that what I should have said? Break it down to me like I'm five. 
we went liberal we oh my god the metaphors i had to write it down it hurt my we went to the water pump if you buy a bus a liberal oh my god a capital we went what does a black radical do he even had to do it twice if you go back and listen because the first time around he didn't just say oh a black radical what do they do that nobody else does a black radical wants fundamental change now we have to assume nobody else wants fundamental change and even be specific like what does that mean exactly but okay they want fundamental change okay he didn't say that the first time around that is so vague which is exactly the point. If you're just trying to target any black person, call them a radical, and that's it. You don't even have to explain it. Like, that's just Negro radical. I got it. Negro militant. Well, what? What did they do? I just told you. Negro militant. Yes. Okay. Got you. <laughs> Go put them in jail for 50 years. Kill them. Kill their whole family. Whatever it is. Radical. Negro. From now on, the use of that word radical, as soon as I saw it in the book, I was bummed like, man, the last time around, I should have said something about that. Like, what the hell? Like, black radicals, because he does say it a few times uh, in the book, like black radicals and talking about Asada Shakur. (laughs) Like, what in the world? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Any use of the term radical, that is a deliberate act of racism, white supremacy. If that's you are a scholar, you have a doctorate, you teach and all the rest of it. And that's the best you can do in explaining what is a black radical? What do they do that no one else does? Come on. Anywho, uh, we'll take a quick break and hear folks thoughts on Dr. O'Reilly, especially folks who got to hear him the second time around or folks who. Uh, pause to read his book I cannot emphasize enough like this book is important it does have a lot of great material but it is still a white man reading this book even a line like that we were talking about the assassination of Malcolm X man oh man with the uh, the book on Minister Malcolm X and his FBI file is bigger than this book this book is 500 pages The book on Malcolm X and his FBI files is bigger than this book, which I would expect it to be. And again, that's just what they've released. I cannot wait until they release Bill Russell's file. I cannot wait. And again, the cow's timing, impeccable. The only reason we discussed this because David Houck was on the program and he didn't say a word. If he had just mentioned, if he had even just had a footnote about Cointelpro, the FBI's activities, we would not have spoken to Dr. O'Reilly today. I would not have gone back. Let's go back and have to reread that book, big book all over again. No way. Him not saying, and he's the Fannie Lou Hamer scholar of rhetoric. And not, and he had the book in his hands and didn't read it. Those sort of omissions are not acceptable. They're just acts of white supremacy, racism. It took me a while to even process like, now how big, how much emphasis? Maybe this is just lame Gus. This is super important. You can't talk about anything related to the 1960s. Dr. Wells, the grandsister, she said, you can't talk about racism, period. 
if you are not familiar with this content. There is no way you're going to talk about 1964 Freedom Summer or anything else from the so-called civil rights movement and not mention, oh yeah, these folks, federal government is snooping on, neutralizing, sometimes killing black people. And particularly because that standard operating procedure to omit that they'll bring up those tacky rumors about Dr. King and oh my gosh sexual pervert and all these he cheated on Coretta they'll bring that up every King holiday every black history month they won't do that with Cointelpro they didn't even say Cointelpro in the New York Times article that I quoted from talking about the exoneration in the Malcolm X murder case They just said the Federal Bureau of Investigation withheld. Put that in context. This is one of the main targets like we probably got when I said they got whole library sections on Negro lynchings. Oh, my God. They probably got whole library sections on Minister Malcolm X surveillance, CIA surveillance, whole different section, FBI surveillance, whole different section, NYPD NYPD surveillance. Might even be a whole nother section. Same thing I said before. Do you have Minister Malcolm on wiretaps where he's talking to somebody else who's being wiretapped? So he goes to visit Cassius Clay. That's what he was named at the time. So is that wiretapped? He's talking to Jim Brown. Is that wiretapped? Which way? Both? Anywho, I forgot to ask him, do you do a whole lot of interviews like black people? Do they ring you up to uh, chat about, you know, Cointel Pro and all that. I should have asked him. I did have it on the list. What can you do? Anywho, uh, before we get to the folks who die, I just the omissions. I cannot emphasize that enough. That's something I I have not. I guess at this point, like man, we've been here 13 years, and I don't like mess around. We have guests on the program. I read their material, so I know a lot more information than when we started in 2009. At this point. I'm having to regularly think like, oh, man, they are leaving out major material. Now I'm having a way. So is this I know this because we've been here studying for 13 years. Or is this just information that you should know, too, if you're familiar with the subject matter? And I'm saying all these omissions when these white scholars come on here and they live in Buffalo, were born in Buffalo. They write about Buffalo and racism, white supremacy, and they leave out. What are we doing in the book club tomorrow? Joseph G. Christopher, I'm saying that omission, even if it's just you're lazy and you've been eating Cracker Jack and Funyuns instead of going to the library doing research, that's racism too. You write a book about Fannie Lou Hamer, you're the Fannie Lou Hamer scholar and you don't include, man, Cointelpro has a chunky Fannie Lou Hamer file. That's racism too. Especially since that's standard operating procedure, even importantly, before we got to all of that, what do I call it? Racism, obfuscating. You can't even tell me what a black radical is. All of us, Gus T included. When we talked about Judas and the black Messiah. 
I did that deliberately. I asked him, Roy Mitchell, you all can take that quiz yourself. Did you know who Roy Mitchell was? Did you know who William O'Neill was? I knew. I've known William O'Neill's name for years. Even before the cows existed, I knew William O'Neill. I did not remember Roy Mitchell's name. His name is in this book, which I read years ago the first time. So, I mean, I've known his name. I'd read his name repeatedly. Did not William O'Neill's name is then he committed suicide we don't even think like dang racism does take an impact on us like oh my god nope coon snitch no count Sam rest of life and again man they can come in and pressure all kinds of way they can hey you can do the five years go snitch on Fred Hampton no count coon anyway might as well go snitch and you can make some money not just you don't have to do the five years hey you need a new car no problem you need three hundred dollars no problem or you don't want to do it lots of ways we can do this but again we know William O'Neill Judas and the black messiah they didn't even put up in that film they didn't put up a title card and give you now what was Roy Mitchell's tax payer or yeah the taxpayer paid salary how much did Roy Mitchell get how much of a bonus did Roy Mitchell get because they even said in the film how much of a bonus William O'Neill got how much of a bonus did Roy Mitchell get for the murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark like I said before how many other informants did he have how long did he work in this position same thing with Nurse Rivers that right there we know Nurse Rivers we know William O'Neill white people are to blame for that's the same thing the omission the omission where the focus goes the focus always goes blaming other victims of racism pause there incidentally before I get to the listeners if they have any thoughts to share man even that I said oh my gosh when I looked at that book prejudicial written by a victim of racism so VGQ but when I looked at that I just flipped to the references I saw Nixon's piano mentioned a bunch of times Dr. O'Reilly wrote the same book about racism and the U.S. presidents he wrote about Thomas Jefferson mandatory he discussed Sally Hemings he didn't spell her name correctly but he did talk about Sally Hemings how do you write a book on racism and black people a chapter on Thomas Jefferson and not a word about Sally Hemings do it over that's what he said about Dr. Hawk's book do it over that's why I said anything where you got to do it over that's an F D C you got some major errors or whatever the case may be but I mean you got to be joking you write a whole book and you don't mention this at all that's an F and that is an act of white supremacy racism I do not 
it's not even logical to think that that's just a white person who's ignorant or lame or I just got swamped and I couldn't make time to read a chapter. You could read three pages on Dr. O'Reilly's book and would know enough. Ooh, we're going to talk about Fannie Lou Hamer and Freedom Summer. Better include something about the nefarious activities of J. Edgar Hoover and the G-Men. Any hoodle. Let's see if folks have thoughts to share. Any of the folks who read the book, especially if we got any folks, uh, either if you listen to the archives, you heard them the first time around, then you got to hear them this time, or people, much less you were with us the first time, so you got to hear it way back then and get to get to hear them now. Uh, thoughts on what we heard this here evening? I will say, Jesus Lord, man, I don't know if Gus T is any better, although it seems I should be way, if, if anything, the audio is way better quality than it was 13 years ago. Man, the callers 13 years later are way better. The first time, man, whew. VGQ, but wow, the first time around, listen to the folks who dialed in with questions. That right there, for the most part, not everybody, but that right there, worthy of great pity. Much, much, much more constructive 13 years on. I don't know if I get to take any credit for that, but whoo, way better job. Let's see the folks who dialed in. Uh, if you all have thoughts on what you heard from Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, white historian, uh, feel free. Hey, Gus, uh, Vincent from New Jersey. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've, I've been, you know, reading the book. Um, definitely, I have, I have better time to read on the weekend. Uh, from Monday to Friday, it's kind of hard. But, um, I mean... Wow, I'm just and and uh and before he came on I listened to the first uh the first broadcast he was on and it was a victim that asked him um about have things gotten better and uh Mr. O'Reilly was like I mean he was he was you know, he was kinda uh stern, like, yeah, you know, we got better. I mean, you know, all the you know, all of the Negro signs are down, you know, so much better, so much better. And today, asking, um, he's kind of uh, corrected that from what I can see. Um, and I mean, just, you know, just the parallels of, I mean, you can just basically change J. Edgar Hoover's name and put Jeff Sessions. Um it, and, and you know, I mean, you can just you could just basically change today's names and put them back there, and everything just seems to still be going to according to plan. Um, you know, I just wanted to ask him more. I wanted to press him more. That I didn't have much time on the uh, black um, identity extremist um, label that was given to. Uh, what what he would call uh black radicals um by Jeff Sessions. Um how, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, you know, I mean, he uh to use a metaphor, you know, you know, um when it came to racial matters, I mean, he was passing the responsibility, um, like a hot potato. You know, he he all he he tried to defer to uh states' rights. 
um, the abuse of Fannie uh, Lou Hamer when I was uh, reading, um, that too was, um, I really didn't know the extent or the um, how brutal uh, they beat her. The passage that you read, um, I highlighted a lot of that what you read, uh, and she came to the conclusion um, that, listen, you know, I don't trust these people, you know? Uh, you know, she, and, and then to further uh, reinforce what she believed, you know, instead of um, protecting her, they basically, you know, started um, open up surveillance on her. Um, in his book, when he talked about um, how the FBI wouldn't take up uh, civil rights uh, matters, but they did take up um, the convict leasing um, aspect. Um, so, you know, there was uh, there was a case where there was a guy who was um, buying uh, uh, incarcerated black people, and once the FBI investigated him, he uh, basically just you know no you know uh, no witnesses, no case. He, he went on to kill them. You know, I mean, this, I mean, like this stuff is omitted out of history, and even referred to the black people who he was using as slave labor as slaves in the book uh, Racial Matters. So it, it's just um, it's just amazing, and I can understand how um, you were just basically. Uh, how can I say disappointed in the last guest that you're you're you're, you're a scholar about Fannie Lou Hamer and you're going to leave out racial matters and also you talked about uh, with the guest you was talking about you know the rapes of black women in some of these jails and I, and and so when you was talking about it I looked on page twenty six and it quotes who um, J Edgar Hoover as it says uh. Edgar says, no, he's not going to send the FBI and FBI in every time some nigger woman says she's been raped. I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know, just, you know, just, 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 just wow, you know, but, um, this book is definitely worth, um, definitely worth the read. Um, definitely worth the read. I close. The grand sister, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, again, give her her kudos because also David Hauk, if he had not, in my opinion, deliberately practiced racism by not referencing this material. Also, we wouldn't be here. I had to have read that material to begin with in racial matters. Dr. Frances Cress Welsing is the reason uh, that I know of that book, read that book. Uh, the grandcestor and just to make sure because I did highlight that exact passage that you're talking about well he said nigger women get said a lot in the book but specifically because I said wow I hope there's a book on that I want to just make sure we get that on the record and then we'll get the other folks who have a hand up this is on page 15 the negro question he writes uh, the FBI opened its most spectacular peonage case in 1921 against a Georgia farmer John S. Williams who had been buying black prisoners from state and county road gangs and jails for years. Upon learning of the Bureau's interest, a panicked Williams eliminated as many potential prosecution witnesses as possible, killing 10 or 12 of his 
slaves. He has it in quotes, but I don't see a need for the quotes. Williams's brutality so aroused public sentiment against these practices, FBI story author Don Whitehead concluded that peonage became a charge rarely heard in courts of law. Offered as proof that the FBI had destroyed peonage, Whitehead's point of fact actually represented a tacit admission that the FBI had decided to avoid peonage investigations. I'll stop. It just goes on to talk about how they didn't even prosecute these cases. But yeah, I, I was stunned when I read that. Not to be surprised, but like, why, that's why you live in Georgia. Summer Library, John S. Williams, 1921. What is this case? There have to be books on this or so even if there aren't books on it. We're going to the library. We will get as many newspaper articles and what have you. We might even get that book, FBI Story, Don Whitehead. Let's at a minimum read the section on John S. Williams. What in that? Ooh. I will bet you $5 and a vegan pecan pie or sweet potato. These are all black males. Black, black male privilege. Any other folks uh, have commentary? They want to make sure they get in. Yes, sir. Uh, I uh, can see why uh, Dr. Welsing uh, uh, suggested this book uh, because of the subject matter uh, and also uh, the author uh, has the ability to give detail on the quote-unquote surveillance of black America. He does it in detail. Uh, also, the observation of, of uh, well, my, my, my thoughts were on, on the book also uh, is uh, the director, the person who became the director, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, he was uh, identified as being a very powerful uh, white person uh, globally, especially in this part of the world. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, the director of the FBI is not is not the most powerfulest white person in this part of the world, but nevertheless, he stayed in that position so long. From my understanding, is because he had uh, information on on people that were ab- above him uh but i think those people that i just mentioned about uh also use that to not do anything to assist non-white people under the global system of racism white supremacy uh especially well globally but but also here uh, that they use that as an excuse, uh, because from my understanding, Mr. Hoover, and I think the second person in charge were not only were homosexuals, they, they were united sexually with one another. And, uh, that was not exposed to the level, like I know white people can do to destroy him. Uh, he stayed in office as long as he wanted to. Uh, and, uh, 
and uh, it 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 would have been interesting for him to talk about that. I did I did find find my book. Uh, it took me a while to, to find it, and uh, and like I mentioned before, I had uh, forgotten a lot of points in the book, so I did some reading reading over. I wanted I wanted him to speak about uh, some of the uh, the first black agents. Uh, several, several of them were utilized to, de- to, uh, destroy, help destroy, uh, Marcus Garvey. Uh, and, uh, I just can't remember the names of some of the other ones, but I have it marked down in the book. Uh, but last but not least, uh, one thing, uh, that I don't ever get a clear answer from with these white writers is the clear purpose on why they write these books and some of them specifically on the system of racism and and are not willing to give suggestions on how to solve the problem. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Read their book, I guess, is uh, what they say. That's the suggestion. Anywho, uh, much obliged, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Um, I'm not sure if he went into detail about the, uh, black agents per se, but I do know that's why I didn't talk about it today. We talked about Marcus Garvey last time around, uh, because we, that was how we grounded the whole conversation. That's why, that's why I was kind of, I was struggling a bit. When Dr. Houck said, well, I don't know if the Cointel Pro program had started by 1963, because I was like, man, Dr. O'Reilly started us with Marcus Garvey, like the 19 teens. <laughs> like, I mean, what are you talking about? Like, uh, in fact, Jack Johnson, back up, that peonage, back up, like uh, already rolling, like black people are suspicious forever. He said that today, forever black people are suspicious. So, yeah, anywho, um I'm I'm trying to see uh get the names of the quick of the uh black agents but I don't know if we went in detail about them but we did talk about the uh, Marcus Garvey and their efforts I have it marked down I can give it to you Hey yeah, Gup, I, I have the names if you Oh yeah me. woo it's, Let's hear it. Let's uh, hear it. James Crawford uh, James Crawford, uh, W. Samuel uh, Nassetti, uh, and James E. Amos. And James E. Amos was the one who uh, uh, was, he was uh, says he was uh, a veteran of the Marcus Garvey case. His name is James E. Amos. And if, to be accurate, if I didn't pronounce uh, w. Samuel Nassetti, uh, the last name is N-O-I-S-E-T-T-E. And also, uh, these are, these, these was only three. And, uh, James Crawford was J. Edgar Hoover's chauffeur. Mm. Right. James Crawford. And, and to note, James Crawford was only given a badge after the NWACP questioned uh, um, the hiring practices of the FBI as it relates to uh, 
uh, black um, agent. So let me go ahead and get this Negro show for a bag so I can shut the end of the race. Well, black male privilege. He did include that. It appears to be just going to say real quick, he did include them in his uh, will once he kicked the bucket, as they say. Did we miss anybody before retired firefighter? Did anybody have any commentary they wanted to get in? Our caller at 2262, do you have any commentary you needed to share? Uh, no, not at this time. Right on. Much obliged. Retired firefighter. Yes, I, I would say the level of participation by by non-white black people, uh, they were able to attain that in a much much more cheaper fashion, uh, similar to what took place with the with uh, with the uh, black male who assisted in the death of uh, uh, the uh, Chicago uh, uh, Black Panther Party uh, head. Uh, just get somebody. Get somebody uh, that has a, uh, a background, a criminal record, uh, maybe felonious, and uh, threaten him uh, if you uh, don't want to go to jail, and I also would pay you that you work for me. And that's basically, that's basically the only the level that they had to that they had to do, you know, even up even up to uh, Jay Hoover's retirement before he died. That's literally all they had to do. They didn't, they didn't have to go through sending a, a, a black person to uh, Quantico and train them and whatnot, that sort of thing. It, it, uh, it, uh, they didn't even have to go through all of that. They just got it in a much more cheaper fashion from, from my studies of reading this book as well as uh, my own personal studies and other things on what on what they did in order to uh, get the use from a, a non-white black person. That's it. Mm. Very easy to do. Super easy. Uh, and then we are, are conditioned to turn around and blame the victims uh, who get used in these programs, informants or whatever you want to call it. Uh, that's how we end up being uh, William O'Neill's no count dirty all the rest of it and all this continues today you see the same thing that's how they get all these plea deals and everything else oh, you better turn them in or you're same thing you're gonna get the five years it's gonna be one of you it's gonna be you or your brother make a decision and they end up getting all the, all that that's what domination looks like also that's another reason neely fuller jr says hey try to avoid doing anything that will land you in greater confinement then you can try to minimize being presented with some of these, hey, you're going to get the five years and, you know, all that. I'm not out here, you know, trying to commit criminal activity or anything else. We are in a system of white supremacy. So, I mean, they do a lot of things, but at least you can minimize that by best you can. I am, as they say, following the law. Anywho, uh, I cannot stress enough, like, man, reading is more in all of the black people who worked for Hoover, like it's in the book. I read that passage about the alligator. We had Millie McGee on the program. What's done in the dark? I read the passage in the book. Rumors. He engaged J. Edgar Hoover in some sort of homosexual, anti-sexual activity. He's got all these black males working for him, chauffeuring him around, 
Mm. We've talked about, especially, you've got this obsession with black male sexuality? Mm. Delectable Negro, we talked about all of that before. In fact, even with boxing, Larry Holmes and all, they talked about those files being uh, liberated when uh, Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali fought the first time around. Again, I cannot wait until they release Bill Russell's file. Oh my gosh. What is there? The regular, I want everything. Every single detail. I cannot wait. That was, I was going to put in a freedom of information request. And incidentally, I think everybody should do at least one FOA request before you pass on. Bucket list, as they say. It's got to be something some bit of information that you want to know that has been hidden, concealed, whatever it is everybody should put in at least one for request. That was going to be mine but then I saw someone had beat me to it. I probably, several folks by the time that I uh, recognized because I thought uh, Bill Russell like, oh they probably have his file online and blah 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 and then I kept looking like, wait a minute, maybe it's not online. Like, dang request and then I looked and somebody had already submitted but everybody there should be something you want to know that is hidden, not easily, you know, discoverable, something where you have to end up submitting a for request. That should be because we're trying to get information. Everybody, that should be on the and whew, cannot wait. Bill Russell, what in the world did they keep track of, record, follow, all the rest? just for dribbling a basketball that might be in the book club incidentally now that is another rule uh, we do have not to read books just after a black person dies every time this happens it turns out bad we did this with uh, Dr. Layla Africa we did this with Pamela Evans Harris sure it's been a few others I, I was even hesitant like I was going to read Colin Powell's autobiography and say like, I don't know and we end up calling him a coon halfway through and have to read it the rest of the month or whatever but whoa Bill Russell Bill Russell excuse me yes Bill Russell in general I was going to say Bill Russell's uh, biography specific autobiography second win but Bill Russell in general has a lot of stories that involve one of his black male relatives acquiring a weapon of some sort tire iron firearm whatever and confronting a racist white man like lots of stories when I say lots, I mean more than two different black male relatives acquiring weapons to confront a racist white man. I said, wow, that is steady. Even we heard about Bill Russell in the warmth of other sons. He was a part of that migration. He was in Louisiana. If we lived in Louisiana in the 1930s, we also may have had to confront a racist white man or woman with a weapon. He talks about this repeatedly. And then they moved to California. 
Black Panther Party, Bay Area. Like, for reals, because he went to University of San Francisco, Bay Area. Uh, but that's in the warmth of other suns. She did not, and she even includes one of the stories that Bill Russell tells that includes his grandfather going to get his shotgun. She talks about his mother accosted Sheriff Caesar. You're not supposed to be out here dressed like that. Ring, ring, ring. Get out of here, Nicra. Get out of here by sundown. That's what he says specifically. Mm. Uh, he, she goes home. His grandfather finds out. He says, what? Do what? Where's my shotgun? She did not, Isabel Wilkerson, include the shotgun portion in The Warmth of Other Sons. But be that as it may, he has a lot of those stories. And some other... Bill Russell. I cannot wait to get his Cointel profile in the meantime. We might read Bill Russell, Second Wind, in the book club. We are close to finishing tomorrow book club. We are close to finishing Absolute Madness, Joey 22. So we will have to see. That's not definite, but ooh-wee. Bill Russell, race counter violence over and over again. I mean, who... Why would I be upset about reading about counter-violence, black self-respect? I think he even talks about why he went to Mississippi after the assassination of Medgar Evers. Bill Russell, victim of Cointel, probably for his entire life. Anyway, uh, everybody good? Anything? Last sentence? Hey, Jeff, can I ask something? Let's mm-hmm. hear it. Yeah, I just wanted to ask something about uh, William O'Neill. And, like, context is important. Um, I know he's classified, you know, as a sellout. I even heard people say that when he threw himself in the traffic, he died like the rat he was. However, William O'Neill was only 18 years old. Um... When I look at, I'm, I'm in my 40s, so when I look at my 18-year-old relatives, family, uh, female, males alike, I see them as children. He's only 18 years old. So we have, definitely have to put that into context before we call him a coon and make statements like he died like the rat he was. He was a child. Mm. I was going to say that sounds just like what a coon would say but man that sounds exactly like the Central Park Five we were just hearing about how uh, one of the other victims didn't get compensated and they didn't even vacate his case until recently they were teen and many of them even younger than 18 but they were teens we just talked about that a few days ago. Your brain is still developing until your late 20s. And have some white Roy Mitchell. To have a white federal agent with a gun and a badge at 18 years old come and tell you you can do five years in prison, be gang raped or whatever else. Or you can go, uh, you know, report. I mean, hey, they could like I said, Hey, you could go snitch on these Panther Negras and make some money. Aren't you broke? That's why you're out here looting anyway. Put some money in your pocket. 
We're going to do some name calling. We can start with Roy Mitchell. Have to know his name to name call him again. How many of us, when I did that deliberately, did you immediately, oh yeah, that's the white guy. Helped kill Fred Hampton. Roy Mitchell, of course. Hmm. Hmm. Anywho, um, I can't say enough. When you read Racial Matters, there's a lot of new scholarship. Like, it shouldn't be any half-stepping about Geronimo Pratt. Total victim. He did not deserve to be in jail. Jack Olson's biography, Last Man Standing. We read it in the book club. The great John, he was so explicit about that case and how it was such a flagrant illustration of deliberate white supremacy racism against a two-time Vietnam veteran, uh, Geronimo Pratt, where they knew he did not commit these murders, tennis court murders as they were, and as I said, they had been looking to lock him up. Charles Manson crimes, he did that to her, anything we can throw on him. Come on. Uh, Malcolm X, the FBI file, that book is larger than this book. Agents of Repression, uh, War Churchill, Jim Vanderwall. I have read that one, cover to cover. Uh, same subject matter. Now that talks about uh, the full title, Agents of Repression, the FBI's War Against the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement. The first portion is about the Black Panther Party, even though they do go into detail about Fred Hampton and some of the other cases, some that we talked about today, and William Sullivan. But then the second portion is about the American Indian Movement. These are victims of racism. It's the same story. They did a lot of the same ta- uh, tactics, killing people and disinformation, blah, 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 all the rest of it. But that one's good. There's a lot of other material. The documentary on uh, Malcolm X, who killed Malcolm X, especially since we got an exoneration in that case I would check that out I think it's like six parts uh, when there are a lot of documentaries on Malcolm X's assassination uh, that have been done over the years that have great information he mentioned Carl Evans book The Judas Factor Judas two times that is a great book he was in the documentary consultant on the uh, so-called Atlanta child murders documentary but Carl Evans book The Judas Factor is great uh, and gives a lot of context since we talked about that not rage context this fellow was starting Minister Malcolm understood he stopped blaming the nation of Islam in his final days and said man this is beyond their capabilities duh especially when it's not even debated of course they got informants within the nation of Islam and Minister Malcolm's group, Organization for African American Unity, of course. Duh. So if that's the case, hey, even if it is somebody that's quote unquote in the nation who does this, same way with the Panthers and all the rest of it, we got informants, right? And you conveniently don't catch most of the folks who participated in Malcolm X's murder. Hmm and withhold all that information for decades hmm darn for somebody that we and I even forgot and conveniently 
The press reports this as, oh, it's someone who deserved it anyway. The the parlor who asked, the prince of violence, the metaphor. We had so many metaphors today. My goodness, I'm so glad somebody talks about that. The prince of violence. What? What? The princesses, princes, kings, queens of violence are all classified as white. But when you can use words like that skillfully, you can take somebody who is a murder victim, a victim of violence, and they become worthy of being killed. Hey, they perpetrate violence themselves. Are the princes of violence. Whole file, excuse me, whole book on Minister Malcolm X that is larger than this book. And that's just what has been released. Dr. Welsing said, if you're not informed about this material, you should not speak about racism. Just based on that alone, that's why we had this program. David Hauk, Davis, excuse me, Davis Hauk. That's why that book, even though it does have a lot of solid information. Oh, man. F and all the other books when they talk about this anything related to so-called black people trying to replace white supremacy with justice Dr. Welsing said this material critically important mandatory to be included for context about why even this problem hasn't been solved who's confused about even that's one to think on as we wrap up Now, when we talk about who's confused about racism, white supremacy, it's not just who writes these books consistently. Also, it's when you hear consistently, dang, Marcus Garvey's top aide was an informant. Dang, Fred Hampton's top aide was an informant. Now, how many times do you have to hear that before you start to say, dang, maybe we're not that informed about racism, white supremacy. If we keep getting tricked over and over and over. Much obliged, Dr. Welsing. Be here tomorrow for the book club. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. For sure, reading is more important than watching television They do have some pretty good documentaries on this subject matter. All power to the people. I sound clip that one. Who killed Malcolm X? I sound clip that one. They have some other good ones. too. The FBI's war on black America. The title alone. Haven't seen it. You got to watch that one. All that is supplementary. I say that as someone who's watched all of those. They're great. They're supplementary. They do not compare to reading racial matters. Agents of repression. Pick the book. They do not compare. It's way more detail. It's nice to see those to put a face and get the extra details and all that. And even to see the archival footage. That is great. They are extremely informative. They are supplementary. With that, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy Part of the Pro operation was, hey, get him on drugs, narcotics, 
marijuana. Protect your brain computer. Uh, with that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. William O'Neill, 18 years old. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. They could have ended Judas and the Black Messiah with that. Like, he was 18 years old. That alone would have been enough. Like, whoa. 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 They didn't even make an effort to make him look like an 18-year-old in the movie. They had him looking like a grown, had him played by someone who's, I think, in his 30s. Oh, it's disgraceful. (sighs) Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling even William O'Neill he is not a sellout he is not a coon victim with a capital V victim of white supremacy man anywho Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.